Hey guys, what's up? It is week 220, and since I'm covering so many spaghetti westerns this week, I want to give you guys a chance to win a 4K copy of Django from Arrow Video. All you have to do is send an email to ScreamingToiletContest at gmail.com. In the title description in the top, just put contest. I'm limiting this to North America, so please only North American residents enter. Uh, yeah, that's all you have to do. You'll probably receive some advertising from MVD about sales and upcoming releases. So if you want to enter to win Django on 4K by Sergio Carbucci, starring Franco Nero, the one and only, send an email to ScreamingToiletContest at gmail.com. So um, we're going to hop into the reviews, and the first set, or the first uh, thing I'm going to cover is this Vengeance Trails from Arrow Video. Uh, four spaghetti westerns in this bad boy. So in the mid-60s, the runaway success of Sergio Leone's Dollar Dollars trilogy gave rise to an explosion of similar productions as filmmakers by the dozen sought to capitalize on this new, uniquely Italian take on the western. Characterized by their deeply cynical outlook, morally compromised anti-heroes, and unflinching depictions of savage violence. The specially curated selection gathers together four outstanding examples of genre from the heights of its popularity, all centered around a theme of revenge. That's just a little opening, and they go into the titles here, um, but I'm going to go into those uh, one by one. So we're going to start with uh, my personal favorite of the four, uh, by my second favorite horror director of all time, and my top five favorite directors of all time, all, all genres included, and that is Massacre Time by Lucio Fulci. And this bad boy actually stars Frank Nero, who's a huge kid. I mean, that's awesome. He was in a couple other Fulci movies, the White Fang films, and it also stars George Hilton, which is another awesome addition to a cast in a spaghetti western. George Hilton did um, one of the Sartana movies, and he's in a slew of these uh, Sergio Martino uh, Gialli, including A Strange uh, Vice of Mrs. Worth and um, Case of the Scorpion's Tale. He is in tons of movies. He's also in the great Gialli, My Dear Killer. So, just an actor that is uh, anybody that watches Italian cinema, we familiar with so um the thing about all these spaghetti westerns that i truly missed and in westerns in general but a lot of the italian ones they all open up and they all have these excellent like theme musics made just for the movie and that's like a dying art they don't really do that anymore in the 60s and 70s had a lot of even some 80s movies um i, I was bringing an example at close range is one that in the 80s that like that song by madonna made the movie that much better and it feels like it was made just for for that but um, we're talking about Massacre Time. I don't know how the hell I got to Madonna. But uh, the theme music in here is just excellent. It opens up... Well, it actually opens up in a, in a scene of brutality, which introduces the villains, which is always an excellent way. Um, we have these kind of like uh, rich people, like hunting I immigrants, or these like not immigrants, sorry, but poor poor Mexican uh, people, and they're just like kind of doing the hard target deal, where they're releasing dogs and chasing them down. And I guess, to my understanding, due to the the commentary on here, that um, they mention I can't remember. It's one of the big names that did the commentary. I want to say it's Troy Howard. Uh, no, it's a, it's a it's a duo on here. Um, I don't want to, uh, it's a duo on the commentary. I just want to make sure I get their names right. Yeah. See Courtney Joyner and Henry Park. They mentioned that this was a big inspiration for Tarantino and Django Unchained. You could see that with the kind of villains here. So they, they chase down this poor guy and they, they execute him. And that's kind of what we're introduced to our villains. And we go to the theme music, which is amazing, about uh, a man leaving his home and uh, going out for gold. It's just an excellent song. It'll be playing in the back here. And if it doesn't get stuck in your head, I don't know what's wrong with you. Uh, or maybe you're watching the wrong channel. So essentially, Franco Nero gets uh, a note or a letter or a message from somebody that he needs to return home immediately. He doesn't have anything else. He doesn't. It's very vague. 
Um, he left his home a long time ago. When he gets into town, he realizes that something's come over and something's completely changed the town. There's these, everything is owned by this one guy. There's some goons that give him a hard time. One of played, one is actually played by Romano Pupo, um, who's in a bunch of these. I think he's in uh, Fulci's Contraband and he's in Ghoulies too, which I always remember him in, but he's just um, a goon, you know, a goon in all these uh, movies like Italian films and everything like that. He plays a strong man in Ghoulies too, Ben and the Iron. Um, so yeah, there's like some memorable goons here. And then he realizes that what happened is this rich kind of guy bought everybody's property. His brother, who's played by George Hilton, and they seem to have kind of a shaky relationship, has become a drunk. So it's up to him to kind of try to figure out exactly what is going on. And he's not like this amazing gunfighter or anything like that. You don't really see him as that. He's just kind of like a gold miner. So he shows up. And um, there's this really excellent scene here that's like uh, old school kind of barroom brawl where George Hilton is pissed drunk just kind of starting shit. And it's absolutely hilarious because he goes throughout the entire movie really drunk and he just ends up whooping a bunch of ass kind of stumbling. And uh, it's just kind of, um, and I know they compare this in the commentary too, but it, it reminded me of Real Bravo in the beginning with uh, Dean Martin. And it's definitely that kind of character type. Um, and even... The movie seems to have that kind of camaraderie, like that brotherhood between certain characters and the kind of a ragtag group, especially between the brothers kind of coming together. So we have that in here and we, we realize that there's more that meets the eye. Um, the standout, another standout in this movie is actually the, the, the rich guy has this evil degenerate son and he is always like has his neck crooked and it's like a sign of obvious uh, depravity and he so much is like he's the one I, he carries a bullwhip he enjoys torturing and killing and he seems to be kind of like twisting his father in a more negative light than he actually is um he's not great of course but he is not the sadist that we think he is it's actually the son um but he's just wearing this like fancy nice white suit and he just has a smug weird look on his face his neck is crooked it's just like a such a a visual uh, uh you know visualization of his twisted mind within his character and, and it might sound like a uh, comic booky or cheesy but it really it really works in here and i mean these spaghetti westerns do have like a certain pulp to them all westerns kind of do which is very fun but uh, the shootouts in here are great. Uh, the bad guys are great. And the end siege is, is fantastic. But one thing I really connected with here was the relationship between the brothers. Um, it's kind of easy to predict. There's slight twist in here and you kind of figure everything. And especially when you start watching a lot of these, they do have some of the similar kind of themes like the racism, racism against poor people. And that's just a typical thing in a lot of these Westerns or like rich people buying all the property and muscling people out, which seems to have happened in the West. And then other things like... Uh, weird family secrets and reveals but uh the end the end shootout is awesome the music's great and there's this thing with george hilton where like throughout the movie he'll casually kind of like just kind of torture animals and be just an overall piece of shit at the very end um there's this scene where he kind of like uh franco nero kind of changes a little bit of that and i love that a lot of good details absolutely adored this one um there is uh some features on this of course there is an interview with um franco nero which i actually liked and it is uh he's speaking in english um so i like seeing that i mean franco nero could speak in italian and english he's one of those actors and his english is good enough so when i talk about another one later on it always throws me off when I hear uh, him dubbed in a different English voice. But uh, there's also uh, the air. Um, there's the archival interview with George Hilton. Then there's the air of violence, a new video interview with film historian Fabio Mellelli. 
and of course the commentary and there's an alternate us dub so there's two us dubs in here um and then there's the um uh you can watch it in italian as well but this is one that i always wanted to watch because i've always been a huge fan of fulci I had like some DVDs. It was also like known as the Brute and the, the I can't remember the other name, but Massacre Time and the Brute and something else, the Brute and, uh, but I'm so glad that it's finally got a Blu-ray release and it was, it, it's like a gem within the Spaghetti Westerns for me. I, um, I've almost enjoyed every Spaghetti Western I've watched, but this is one of my favorite ones. So yeah, definitely if you, if you like Fulci and you want to see what else you can do. And I mean, it has these brutal moments too. You can tell it's Fulci cause he'll do these like, and all the bad guys in these movies are completely ruthless, right? They'll kill families. They'll use whips. They'll just do whatever. They'll shoot priest. So yeah, it, it's a great movie. Okay, the next one I'm going to talk about technically qualifies as a 1970 watch as well because I know it has, some people consider it kind of like a gothic, almost horror-oriented thing. I really don't. But this is uh, Antonio Maragetti's movie And God Said to Cain starring Klaus Kinski. That's right. Um, I know Klaus Kinski has, uh, you know, kind of a, he's a very infamous actor, right? He's got a lot of accusations and things bad about him, stories that are just insane. But as far as screen presence is concerned, I love Klaus Kinski, man. He is just, um, every time he's on screen, whether it's in like Count Dracula or the Herzog movies that I've seen, or this, he's just, he's very intriguing. And the Leone movie, he's in what, uh, for a few for a few dollars more, I think he's in that one as the Hunchback. Um, so I've always enjoyed him. This movie, he's out for revenge. And like all of them, they're out for revenge, right? So essentially what happens is he's on a prison chain gang. And a beautiful music again in this one, almost a little bit more, um, I don't know how to put it, like church vibing in this. I like this music as well. And uh, he is released from the chain gang. They say basically uh, immediately for some reason he had long time to go. So he catches uh, a stagecoach to this town. He um, is introduced to this young man on there. He's talking and he realizes um, the young man's going on and on. And Klaus Kinski says, you know what? Tell your father I'm going to come see him. And he says, do you know my father? He's like, are you a friend of my father's? He's like, mm-mm. And uh, so therefore, like, it's a really great setup. He ends up going to this old man and, and kind of learning everything that he needs to know. And he kind of goes into town. And right away, uh, the bad guy in this one is a, is a German actor that it pops up in another one of these movies. Another one of these four spaghetti westerns. Pretty good bad guy. But he's he runs this town, of course, like a, like a villain. And he is just a greedy son of a bitch. Um, but his gang is led by, like, these three brothers. One of which is, I can never think of this guy's name. You'll see him if you watch any of the uh, Antonio Marigetti um uh vietnam movies i think he's in like two or three of them he's just uh just kind of um geez he's even in i want to say that that guy's in strike commando uh too he's just in a bunch of movies he's kind of like a peter laurie style looking guy um so there's these three brothers that kind of are like leading this gang um what makes this one so cool is the thick atmosphere so um kind of like hard rain uh and the whole, all the action takes place during this like big storm that's coming, like a big dust storm is coming to the town. So it's like there's lightning and it's dark and it's gnarly. And pretty soon um, after Klaus Kinski's in town and all the bad guys are looking for him, uh, the, the bell, the church bell keeps going off. Ding, ding, ding. And every time it, it dings, you can just see the main villain be really like cowering, sitting there with his son. And his son doesn't know the whole story of what happened. And we don't really know the entire reveal either until later. But Klaus Kinski starts using all these like uh, underground paths and stuff in the town and basements to pick off the bad guys as he can. And he's like, they're, they keep bringing him in the church and stuff. And there's some really cool kind of uh, strange kills in here too, using uh, some of the uh, weird surroundings and everything. Kinski's 
great and it has a really good standout shootout at the very end involving a lot of mirrors that may go on a tad long but it's really cool and uh, the wind is great and the atmosphere is there this one uh, I think is, is pretty unique and different um, as far as the features are concerned on this uh, disc we have um, new audio commentary by author and critic Howard Hughes between Gothic and Western, a new documentary featuring a new video interview with film historian Fabio Melelli, a new audio interview with actress Marcella Ma Michelangeli. I can't do these Italian names when I don't know them already. And uh, of Night and Wind, a new interview with actor Antonio Catafora. So yeah, another good one here. Uh, this is probably my second favorite, but that doesn't take anything away from the other two, which I think are very close to. I, I must point out one thing that's very strange on this release, and I'll, I'll hopefully you guys can see it. You'll see it in the closer video, too. If you look at the sides here, like the little pictures on the sides, I'm blocking my face. You can um, see that it's all my name is Pecos on the side for the little things here, except, and my name is Kane. Um, and God said to Cain. So I think that's a misprint. If you do some of the reversibles, they change, but they put my name is Pecos for the 30 little uh, initial picture there, which is kind of a nitpick on my part, but I know not, not necessarily a nitpick, but it can be a little distracting for some people. I don't care all that much. I'm just glad to have these movies in HD um, on Blu-ray. So, but I, I do have to point it out because I noticed how strange that was. So we're going to hop into the next one. Okay. The next one is directed by Massimo Dallamondo, and this is a bandit. Toes. Yeah, and uh, this actually stars, I'll never say his name properly, so I don't want to insult him or insult his name. Uh, the main detective in Bird with the Crystal Plumage. He's also in The Savage Three as a detective, and he is the journalist. And no, the case is happily resolved. Those last two I mentioned were actually, all three of those movies were just recently re-released by Arrow Video, which is crazy. This is like the fourth movie I've seen with this guy within a couple weeks. Um, he's fantastic. Um, so he's got a lot of, he's a good, good uh, leading man here. So he's only kind of one of the leading men. Uh, what we have here is... Uh, the, the villain in here is also uh, very notable, uh, and it's the first time I've seen him in a Western, and according to the commentary by Cat Ellinger, which is a great one, it's the only time he was in a Western. That's why I was like, oh, I, I've, I, this guy is typically in the horror gothic stuff. So the main baddie in here is actually, um, if you guys have ever seen City of the Living Dead, he's the one that gives old Bob his, his way out, you know, and he's also in Cannibal Apocalypse. He's just in a slew of movies. He, he's always there. Like, he's just in a couple of my favorite horror films of all time, so I, like, took his face to memory. Um, and he's in this as the villain, which he's really good in it. So, essentially, what we have here is this amazing, like, train robbery in the very beginning where these ruthless banditos uh, just wreak havoc on this train, and they kill everybody in here almost. They're shooting everybody. And we get to this one guy who seems to be, like, this gunfighter, and he's, like, taking them out as many as he can. And uh, the main bad guy calls him out, and it appears that these two uh, have a history. So instead of killing him, uh, the baddie actually wounds his hands. And this guy made a living by being like a trickster, basically kind of like, what would you call it, like Annie Oakley kind of deal where she'd go town to town. He would go town to town and do all these tricks and shootings and everything like that. And he was like a master gunfighter, right? And that deal. So we cut to him now with his injured hands and he's basically teaching other people how to do it. And it's you get this idea that it's the end of the West, right? It's the old end of the West and everything's changing and everything like that. So uh, he's on his way out and just things aren't working out for him um and basically uh more tragedy strikes this guy and he finds a new guy to teach and everything like that 
and he wants to teach this guy to get his revenge. So that's kind of where we're at here. Um, the main, the other guy that um, the young guy who's I'm gonna be honest, he's not as is not as interesting as the main baddie or the uh, the old man with the injured hands. He's kind of just. He's just, I don't want to say a shell because he doesn't have like the screen presence of a Franco Nero or George Hilton or Clint Eastwood in these movies. So he's there. He's a, you know, he's just a guy, but it's okay. I mean, he gets outshone, uh, outshined by a lot of the other cast here. But so uh, what we have is this kind of trickery between there's a couple gangs and pittings and, and back and, and like kind of stuff like that, manipulating the thing here. There's a lot of good characters. Uh, it's good. It's good. It's well done. And there's a good reveal of the history between all the characters and stuff. Uh, yeah, this one's very entertaining and it's really driven by the performance of the, the I can't I'm going to try to say his freaking name here. Um, Richard Martin, uh, basically Enrico Maria Salnero. Salnero, and they, they list two of the movies that I mentioned too. Yeah, so it, it's really driven by his performance. It's, it's pretty top notch. But again, a pretty brutal movie, as they all are. I mean, like all these movies have like that's the problem if you watch six spaghetti westerns. Like you can't remember which movie where the bad guys shot the kids, but I know there's like more than one of them. Like oh, they killed the priest in this one. They killed the kids in this one. They killed more kids in this one. They killed everybody in sight in this one. So th there's that deal. Anyways, the special features on here is a new audio commentary by author and critic Cal Ellinger. Cal Al is it Cal Ellinger? Ellinger. So, um, I always listen to her commentaries because they're my favorites. But a man in a saloon, a new video interview with assistant director Luigi Pirelli. They called him Simon, a new video, inter new video interview with Gino uh, Barbacani. Uh, Western Bandits, a new video interview with film historian Fabio Melelli. Oh, I should mention before I completely forget here. I want to double check. Uh, oh, geez, for Massacre Time, the screenwriter of that was Fernando DeLeo, who wrote like a, who made all those awesome Polizio Tessi movies that uh, Raro put out on Blu-ray. So I want to make sure I mention that before I forget. And that's it on that one. Okay, the the last one in the set is My Name Is Pecos. And this one, again, has an awesome, uh, awesome score. Right in the beginning, it, it plays into the character's name and everything, and he gives his name, and then boom, the music starts playing after he, he takes out this badass. Uh, Robert Woods plays the lead in this one, and one knock on the movie. I only have one minor complaint, is they use these uh, weird glue things on his eyes to make his eyes look different, so he looks Mexican. It looks terrible, like in HD and everything. It's just the product of its time, what they used to do back then. So it is what it is. But it looks hilarious, to be honest. It makes his eyes look all messed up like this. Like, So I imagine it was hard to keep the makeup in place. Uh, Pecos is on the way for revenge. His uh, family was killed, and he's looking for the bad guys who did it. So uh, I'll say about this one. This one, as far as crews are concerned, like bad guy crews... I think this one had the best. There was about 14 bad guys. I'm a weirdo like that. I'll count the bad guys. I'll try to memorize the faces. And all the faces were picked out really well here. They all had distinguishing features or a little hat or something to uh, break them apart here. So, like, Pecos ends up bumping into a lot of these guys by themselves. And it, it felt most kind of like the Leone stuff to me as far as that's concerned. And he would pick them off. And in the beginning, you get a scene that, like, all of them are together. And it just reminds me of stuff that obviously was inspired by spaghetti westerns like Tombstone with the bad guys and everything like that. But anyways, among this group of baddies is freaking George Eastman. Also, uh, um, the German guy from And uh, God Said to Kane is also one of the baddies. So we got a, a slew of great baddies here. Eastman is great in this. He looks awesome. Love George Eastman. Um, but anyways, the bad guys are great. Again, ruthless. And they do dumb things uh, at times they shoot a couple people they're not supposed to and the boss is like come on man 
But uh, any, anyways, Peiko starts to pick these guys off. They're looking for gold. It's always the same kind of storyline with these, but it just comes down to, do you like the characters? Do you like how it unfolds, the emotional connection? This one, I have the least amount to say about it, but I actually think it was one of the more fun ones too. I, I don't know how I'd rank these. Like I put Massacre Time at the top, but all the other ones, like these are all three and a half to four star, high three and a half to four star movies out of five. Like I liked every single one and, and coming back to them, they would go up higher. It was so enjoyable to watch all these and just, and kind of almost like not necessarily shut my brain off, but just be like captivated and, and, and like intrigued again and just getting emotionally invested in the bad guys and the characters getting wasted. And I'm like, kill that guy, kill that guy, stuff like that. Um, so yeah, on the features here are, um, Again, we have a commentary by Robert Woods and author and critic uh, Courtney Joyner, C. Courtney Joyner. And that's great to hear because he's obviously a fan of Robert Woods, so he's talking with Robert Woods, and Robert Woods is bringing a lot of things up. And he mentioned some things. He's like, I think any actor probably could have done this, any actor worth their weight. So it's not like he's like so on some big ego trip, but it was nice to hear those two talk. And uh, obviously Joyner is a big fan of this actor and this movie. Um, there is a sequel, which I would like to see of this film as well. Also included is um, A Giant in the West, a new video interview with actor uh, Luigi Manafori, a.k.a. George Eastman. Uh, Indecent Proposal, a new video interview with actress Lucisa, uh, Lucia uh, Mondongo. Pecos Kills, a new documentary featuring a new video interview with film historian Fabio Melelli, An archival video interview with cinematographer Franco Villa. So um, this one was also really fun. They all, um, like I said, share a lot of similarities here. Again, we have a lot of racism in this one against Mexicans and everything. The bad guys are just absolutely ruthless trash bags, so enjoy watching them get killed. There's also a booklet in here um, and a big poster. So there's so much stuff to intrigue. I will apologize because it's so hard to differentiate every little detail about all these because I, I, watch, I just like once I watch one, I was like, well, now I'm, I'm in the mood to watch more and more of these. But um, like I said, they're all just really top-notch. This booklet has really good, you know, um, printed out high-quality stuff, nice hard box. Anyways, if you're on the fence about picking these up and you like westerns, I would really grab it. Um, these are four of the coolest spaghetti westerns. And I know, like, people may not be as familiar with the Plezio Tetsis, but all these westerns together is, is really a treat because I, I had known of Massacre Time and God Said to Cain. Very, I've heard of those a couple times, and they're always on the radar to check out. But now that we had like um, these banditos and my name is Pecos, all four of these are just great revenge tales, and I'm a big revenge western tale. All the songs are fantastic. Um, the camera works great too. I should mention again, Massacre Time has this really great uh, this moment where they're using like this burned out hut, um, and they're going through the windows, and you see like in the background and everything, and they're they're playing with that, and they use like shootouts with it. That's looks like genius stuff like that. So, anyways, just a fantastic set. One of my favorite releases of the year. Would watch again, uh, definitely. Would highly recommend too. This is a great set. Um, pick it up when you get a chance. So. Okay, I'm going to be slightly brief with this one because it's such a classic and I'm pretty sure most people have seen it, but this is Sergio Carbucci's 1966 movie Django. Django like had so many uh, unofficial ripoffs. It's got to be the number one in the book, right, for that. Uh, and there's other guys, too, that had them, Sartana and Zabata, which have a series. But Django really never had its own series, but it was such a uh, vastly popular uh, spaghetti western. It was ripped off forever. So this one stars Franco Nero, and this is probably the 
most popular spaghetti western. To me, I, I would say it's brought up um, after Sergio Leone's movies, of course. So Franco Nero stars as this loner who shows up in the town and he's out for revenge, as the song would suggest in the beginning. Uh, he's basically on his own. You lost everything. That music's probably the best um, song, like not like just scored uh, spaghetti western, but sung spaghetti western song I've ever heard. Um, it always is stuck in my head. Obviously, Quentin Tarantino would reuse it for Django Unchained, where Franco Nero would even have a little cameo in that movie. So anyways, uh, this is a fantastic kind of movie with two gangs running this town and Django coming in and fucking shit up. Um, there's a great robbery scene in here where he teams up with one gang. That's just like an epic uh, heist scene that's fantastic. Um, the bad guys are fan uh, are great. I love to hate this one guy. This uh, general guy is such a miserable piece of shit. Because like there's this, this war between the Mexican guy and he's like this rebel, racist piece of shit left over from the Civil War even though it's over. Um, they wear these red hoods and kind of like Ku Klux Klan kind of deal. Um, the movie is shot in like a lot of muddy areas, so like the dark brown mud and the, the red just stands out so much on it with the red hoods and the blood. There is an ear being chopped off that was obviously lifted by Tarantino later on in Reservoir Dogs. It reminds me a lot of that scene. Um, this is a, a really awesome movie with uh, good characters um, and suspense. Uh, I mean, like at the end, as a good climax and everything like that. And um, it's not as like, it, the end scene is not like the most action-packed, which is surprising because there is a set piece in here involving a coffin and something in that coffin that is just so amazing. Like, there's no way they could have topped that in the end. But as far as the picture quality is concerned, it looks fantastic in 4K. Um, it looks real crisp. I was I was very impressed with it, to be honest. It was probably the crispest and sharpest, um, one of the sharpest 4Ks I've ever seen, like, in, in that detail. So I was very happy with that. There's features on here. Um, so, audio commentary by film critic, historian, and theorist Stephen Prince, Django Never Dies, an interview with Frank, uh, star Franco Nero, Cannibal of the Wild West, interview with assistant director Ruggiero Diodato, Sergio, my husband, an interview with Sergio Cabucci's wife, Nori Cabucci, That's My Life, Part 1, an archival interview with co-writer Franco Rossetti, a rock and roll scriptwriter, an archival interview with co-writer uh, Piero Vivarelli, a punch in the face, an archival interview with stuntman and actor Gioberto Gelbler. <laughs> Galberlini discovering Django and appreciation by spaghetti western scholar Austin Fisher and an introduction to Django by Alex Cox an archival featurette with acclaimed director gallery of original motion promotional images from Mike Siegel archive and original trailers so I did remember the Austin Fisher thing he mentioned that the the editing was a lot like peck and pause with the fast cuts and like I'm trying to think like I, I just, I know Major Dundee was out, but I just thought a peck and pause editing style didn't really get famous for me until, right? Like, it would be the Wild Bunch, right? I know Major Dundee didn't do well and Ride the High Country, his first or second feature, technically, didn't really have the fast cuts in that. So, I don't, maybe. But still, it, it's obviously the easiest way to reference it. If you get the deluxe edition, you also get uh, Texas Adios on Blu-ray. So I'll cover that one next. Okay, uh, covering the second part of this disc here, or this set here, is Texas Adios. Um, and this one was actually made, um, there's Django, and then Massacre Time, and then Texas Adios. So Franco Nero did three spaghetti westerns back-to-back. -back, and it's funny because all three of them, like uh, Massacre Time, has like, similarities to Texas Adios, the story. like So I know Texas Adios, certain places, was advertised as uh, a Django movie. So essentially what we have here is uh, Franco Nero is like, the opening's really cool. Over the credits, you have no idea. There's just, like shootout happening, and then all of a sudden Nero steps in and breaks it up. And you realize he's a sheriff but a good-natured sheriff so essentially he gets word about um, somebody who actually murdered um, his father 
and he wants to go figure it out and take care of it, make the person pay, bring him back to um, Texas. Or is, are they going back to Texas? Obvi obviously, bring him back to Texas to make him pay for the crimes. His younger brother, actually played by one of the the big stuntman family, right? The ones who were all in Zombie. I can't think of their last name. There's like tons of them. There's like seven, eight brothers or something like that. So he is actually his little brother, and he demands to go with them. And it's kind of an adventure film of them trying to figure it out. But there's a twist that's very similar to Massacre Time here, where there's some revelations about family and whatnot. Um, this was my least favorite of the bunch. Um, I did enjoy it, uh, but I just don't think there's one like major kind of bad guy. But as far as like the other bad guys, uh, they're not really like stand out as much. And I, I'm a big bad guy sucker. Well, I will say that I really liked was seeing Luigi Pastillion here from Bay of Blood. And geez, what else is he in? He's in Good to Bad and Ugly and for a few dollars more where he plays one of the better henchmen in those movies. I love him in that. So we have that kind of stuff that I enjoyed. And it's obviously a revolution movie kind of in a kind of in a way by Nero kind of getting his kind of revenge. There's a way that he sparks his kind of revolution, which reminds me of Via Rides, of course, by, um, uh, Sam Peckinpah, written by Sam Peckinpah, not directed. But yeah, this one was all right. I like it. I don't love it. Um, to be honest, uh, if I had to rank all of them, it's really hard to do. I mean, Django and Massacre, they're all great. Um, I, but this one's just not as great as the other five I watched. And my brain is just a, is a, is a landscape right now of great like theme music and shooting and everything that just watching six spaghetti westerns in this same week kind of back to back will give you very hard it makes it very hard to pick out all these little details and everything i should have took meticulous notes but anyways uh love this release of django and texas adios there is like i said a chance to win a just a 4k of django no texas adios in there so yeah Okay, this next one here is from 2010, and I picked this Blu-ray up a while ago wanting to rewatch it. I saw it when it came out on IFC DVD, and this is Dream Home. This is a Hong Kong flick, and uh, this is kind of a strange film. So basically what we have in here is it jumps in time, but we learn of this character who overworks so she can kind of buy. At this time, like the, the property fronts have gone ridiculously expensive, and you need like like hundreds of thousands of dollars just to buy a small little apartment. She's obsessed with this waterfront property she wants due to what happened in her childhood. And we kind of jump around time, uh, jumping back to like when she, when she was very young to modern to very young to modern. And we also see like a lot of these elaborate murders that are being carried out by her. So it makes it really strange that the main character in the film is somebody that they're showing like her past, why she's doing something she's doing and how unfair all this stuff is, but she's also a ruthless murderer. So you're like, oh, this is really kind of strange. Um, you do enjoy, I don't even know where my um, moral compass is on this. Like I know she's horrible and I don't like her, but I also don't hate her. I just kind of along for the ride, I guess I'll say. And, and this movie is kind of a rarity in, I don't want to say, um, nah, that's not correct at all. Can you see key a lot of like, cause you see a lot of these old Hong Kong movies, like as ridiculous and over the top they are. Sometimes they do cat, like kind of like tackle these serious subject matters, um, that have like a point and have a message in them. And I think dream home has it, but at the same time, it is a Hong Kong horror film. And, I mean, Hong Kong had a lot of the crazy films up until what, like the late 90s, and then it was taken over. It's kind of surprising that this one is made there or made uh, for, in Hong Kong. And it's like, it always makes me doubt it that this is a Hong Kong movie because it's so freaking violent, so late in the actual, the, um, the actual, you know, time frame here like it would technically be made at that time anyways uh this bad boy is definitely a cat three and that's due to the graphic murders 
Uh, but it has like this weird, gross, playful sense within the murders, which I don't even know how to explain. So like they, there's a young, there's a young group of people that are murdered in this movie, and the sex scene is actually like there's a sex scene, of course, because they're young, and it's just like. Uh, going to town pretty explicit stuff and i'm just like wow and the way that the murders are carried out it's just so 90s hong kong like think of the, the anthony wong movies or something that they would do something like that but almost even further than that like it mixes into like those like almost like nasty i don't want to say torture porn but it gets to that point where like the murders are so graphic and gross um anyways this is a good movie it has like a dramatic core to it but it also has super high grotesque uh violence which is on the level of inside sometimes um i think it's a good movie i think it's interesting um that this movie was made at the time it was made i think that it actually has a message as well as showing you grotesque violence which is not always a rarity but in this tone and this style i think it's kind of a rarity but uh dream home good good stuff for sure okay this next one is the patreon pick and this is from chris rivers and he picked the public enemy from 1931 starring james cagney um james cagney is an actor i knew from just a couple movies uh white heat and man with a thousand faces he played long cheney senior in that great great casting i knew he was a physical actor a classic actor but these movies aren't always my um like my expertise or anything like that i don't even know if i have an expertise i would say probably you know 70s 80s horror movies 90s horror movies is my expertise or low budget indie stuff from like a certain period not even expertise just that's what i watched a lot of so um the public enemy um, this movie is like an hour and 25 minutes uh and it goes over the entire life of a character a criminal and of course has its tragic end let me say this. Um, nowadays, it is impossible to find a movie this good that is under two hours. So the art of... And that's not necessarily true, but at this impactual like uh, emotional stuff here. Back old movies just didn't screw around. They knew that they had a certain amount of time. It was definitely under 90 minutes, sometimes under 80 to get it done. And they get in there... Um, they managed to set up all the characters, set up the entire life, pay off, everything plays, get you emotional, and it's over. And I was so impressed with the runtime on this movie and how much it still affected me while watching it, right? So James Cagney, they see him as a kid, him and his best friend are troublemakers, kind of doing awful things and, and uh, just, you know, kid stuff, but it obviously can progress into something further. And his older brother is, is just not on the same level. He doesn't want to do this kind of stuff. He's stern. So we go over more and more years and everything. His brother goes off to the military while he kind of sticks around taking care of the mom. And he gets into a little bit crime. One night, him and his friend are kind of drug into the situation and they're kind of screwed over and a murder takes place. And that kind of sets him and his friend on a different path for life. They end up becoming bootleggers during the prohibition time and working for kind of a uh, I don't want to say as respected as gangsters can be at the time, a respected gang gangster named like Riley or Ryan. I think it's Orion. It's a very Irish name, if I remember. But uh, I, I will point out this very hilarious scene when like they're having this talk and this this Orion guy is kind of a bigger guy. And during the scene, he has to eat all these chips. And it's, I don't know. And he's just eating and eating. And I'm just like laughing at the scene because I'm like, man, if they screwed up that take, he just like does not look like he's enjoying eating these chips while talking and just shoving his face. I'm just like, oh man, poor guy. But that's scene just kind of cracked me up it's just a little different nod but anyways uh Cagney in here man his physical acting is great the faces he makes when there's this scene that I laughed for two minutes and thought about for like 25 afterwards for the next day I actually thought about it where um he's being introduced to somebody his boss is like well this is so-and-so and Cagney goes to shake his hand and he's just like 
after he, like you see him in the background, he takes it off and he's obviously wipes it off on his shirt. But the way he does it is so like, I don't want to say it's like so classically acted. It's so awesome. He's like this in his face and his brow and everything, his eyes. Um, this has one of those iconic scenes that um, I think everybody's seen, but maybe didn't know what movie it's from um, with Cagney kind of standing across looking at this, this like a diner or this, this place, not a diner, but like this, this storefront or building where there's some people he doesn't like in there and it's pouring rain and you see the look on his face with, uh, and the two guns and everything. And it's just like, wow, that's such an, a scene that you could just tell. Like, I, I bet like people like Martin Scorsese just ate that scene up and we're just like, Oh, that's like that, that, that little scene encapsulates so much stuff that you would watch in, in other gangster movies later on. And I was very impressed with it. I mean, obviously it's like, uh, like newsflash dumb idiot like good movie it's like <laughs> but no i just was really happy with it and, uh, the emotional impact it got me with the mother and the brother and everything and like i said it, it, i got affected with the uh, family stuff and massacre time it, it, it was there that affected me this was a great movie i really loved it so um that kind of plays into my question of the week i'll bring it up later down the line but it is uh i'll, I'll repeat it of course but masterpiece is under 90 minutes that's like a lost art for me because every freaking movie has to be three hours long and there's nothing wrong with a three hour movie but it's wrong when every movie's three hours now and it's just like movies that aren't even two out of five star movies are three hours long now it's like back in the day when you put in a, a movie and it said three hours you're gonna watch the godfather apocalypse now or something like that and now you put in a movie and i don't sound like an old like get off my lawn it's like space robots like three and a half hours you're like what the fuck dude or uh, fart joke the movie two hours and ten minutes you're like you can't tell me a fart joke in, in 85 minutes what the hell like editors need to come back sorry I know it sounds like an asshole thing to say a lot of people are self-distributing though and they don't have that guy who's going to argue with them until they're blue in the face because you always hear the stories about the, the editing that screwed up a movie the stuff they cut out that screwed it up but what about the ones that got saved by cutting 20 minutes of fat out of it I'm sorry there's got to be they got to be there um, I, I Public Enemy was so good and it was so good at 85 minutes like it was masterpiece right uh got in got out explained everything the entire story i knew who all the characters were i knew exactly how they felt i knew exactly you know the, the climax and the point and the character arcs and everything it was perfect and it was iconic and it had great scenes so you could tell a great movie in 90 minutes and old movies will prove that again and again and again so nothing like I said, nothing wrong with a long movie, but you better be a, a great movie if your runtime is over 90 minutes. That's all I got to say. And my public, uh, public enemy is a great movie and it's under 90 minutes. So I'm going to compare it to that. Though sometimes beaten back, he came again and again against the enemy. Till at the end, he came alone from the bloody field or he alone could triumph. This was a Dracula deed. President Nixon ordered American troops into Cambodia. He called it an incursion, not an invasion. It lasted for two months. The purpose was to destroy enemy bases and supply lines. At times, that mission was extremely dangerous. Marcus Welby, MD, and the Dick Cavett Show will not be seen tonight, so that we may bring you live color coverage of the 42nd Annual Awards of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The Jimi Hendrix experience is over. The acid rock musician died today in a London hospital, apparently from an overdose of drugs. Headquarters in Washington, I'm Howard K. Smith. I'm Harry Reasoner in New York. These are tonight's headlines. 
Rail service across the nation is crippled by the continuing strike of the Railway Clerks Union. President Nixon meets with newsmen in his first nationally televised news conference since late July. Defense counsel says that Lieutenant Calley had orders from higher up to kill every living thing in July. And Secretary of State Rogers pledges that American troops will not be sent back into Cambodia. Howard? Reports tonight on the rail strike from Gregory's... And after she let the devil fornicate with her, making the men impotent. Okay, let's get into these 1970 movies. I'll be a little brief on some of these. This is The Enchanting Ghost. And this is actually... Um, a Shaw Brothers movie in 1970. They say it's kind of like the first kind of ghost story deal they had. Um, so, uh, yeah, Shaw Brothers have seen a handful and a lot of their martial arts stuff. And the problem with those is like they all like merge together. I can't remember a lot of the names. But Seating of a Ghost is one that is bonkers crazy. Enchanting Ghost is a lot more reserved and almost a comedic kind of drama thing here. It took me about 10 minutes to realize that the lead character was supposed to be a male, but it was played by a female, like a femme female. I was like, oh, and then they were calling um, by like a male name. And I was like, oh, what? Like I, they don't really address it. And like, I'm not picking up on the small little stuff. And, and like, just this is a period piece, like the, the ancient times, how they talk to people and, and men and women. So I didn't even pick up on it at first. And then I was like, oh, duh, no wonder everything's like that. So essentially what happens here is this young man is completely screwed over out of his house by his uncle and some evil business asshole guy i don't know what he does but he's awful um and he moves decides to move into this haunted house that's nearby he finds this young woman there um and her dying mother uh her and him and the young woman fall in love and they get married but no one believes that this woman is actually not a ghost so weird things start to happen the bad guy kind of kidnaps her. Some really awful stuff happens. But this is like an hour into it before we realize this actually kind of turns into a horror film. And then there's revenge of these ghosts uh, kind of floating around with these sharp nails doing the whole grandpa as a zombie thing. Where it's like, eh. you know, like if you tell like your grandpa or like an older family relative, it's like, be scary. They're like, eh. and that's exactly what these ghosts are doing with their nails. They're like, oh, got to make sure you see these nails. We spent 10 minutes putting these prosthetic nails on and we're going we're gonna to show them we got to show them. And they do. And they look good. And I enjoy it. And there's some green like lights and everything sets up the atmosphere. This is a decent fun movie. But there was a point in this movie where I thought the bad guys were not going to get their just desserts. And I was literally mad. I was like, if like these characters carry out this awful act and do these awful things and their punishment is, I got scared a little. I am going to hate this because this is just a big waste of my time. But no, uh, justice is served. All right. It is served. And I, I enjoyed myself with this one. Um, the Enchanting Ghost. Pretty fun stuff. Although, must be honest, a little dull. A little dull at first, but it's decent. It's worth watching. And it's interesting to me because it's an early Shaw Brothers film. It's 1970, trying to get a big plethora of movies. A cornucopia, if you will. You know, pick a little bit from everywhere to get kind of the, the look at 1970. Okay, the next one from 1970 is The Vampire Doll which is part of the Bloodthirsty Trilogy, The Vampire Doll, Lake of Dracula, and Evil of Dracula. I've covered this whole set in the past, so I'm just going to talk about Vampire Doll because I used it in my opening, uh, the 1970s opening, because it's a great little shot. And I wanted to revisit this one because it's a 1970 Dracula film from 
from Japan, which is a little different. You don't typically see that, and I remember this movie having some special things about it. So popping it in, I uh, as a whole, I enjoyed it a little bit more this time around. Uh, the first 15 minutes of this movie are some of my favorite parts, like the 1970. It does lose a little bit of the steam, but that opening is just great. So we have this uh, guy who's been on uh, traveling for work. He ends up coming to this isolated house to meet his girlfriend. Uh, he, does, he doesn't obviously he's never been to her house. She still lives with her mom and everything. It's isolated area, very rainy. So he shows up going through like this real thick atmosphere and rain and the cab driver's driving him. Everything's rough. And he gets there and he meets the, the woman and she's got this big gnarly scar on her neck. And she says, you're a little too late. She just died. And he's just completely heartbroken. So he ends up staying the night and he starts to like see glimpses of her at night. Nobody believes him, uh, but something's up, obviously. He goes to visit the grave, I think, the next day, and he sees her, and she's she's looking pale, and it's just a great little scene, and that's where that shot comes from of the uh, the Japanese girl with the weird eyes giving the smile, because she goes to hug him, and then like we see her out that oh she's not right, and that's just a great little creepy scene. Well, anyways, what happens is he disappears, and his sister and her boyfriend comes looking for him. They go to this island. They meet the mother and the hunchback character, the Genko guy that lives there. And obviously some strange things have happened. A doctor gets into it. It's a relatively short movie. It's got like a decent gothic atmosphere, I would say. A different kind of style. Um, like a Japanese gothic. I don't know how to explain that. But it, I don't think it's... It's not a period piece, which is also kind of rare for 1970. A lot of these are period pieces. Um, almost... I, th I would have to go through and count how many of these 1970 horror films are period pieces, but I'd say a damn near half. But as, as uh, I enjoy this one. I think it's got some good shots, um, a decent uh, open, like the opening, it captivates you like the first 15 minutes. Unfortunately, the movie never lives up to that first 15 minutes after that, but I do think it's good. I do think it has some good uh, imagery too. And I love the look of the vampire doll itself. So anyways, creepy fun, the vampire doll. Okay, one I don't own um, is Island of Whores, a.k.a. Decapitation Island. And this is more of a woman in prison flick, but it's a little bit crazier than that. I didn't even know about this. This one's weird. So what we have here is... Uh, this this, uh, this island, this prison island. There's these two girls brought into this prison island. And, of course, it's super brutal. Um, they're all kind of beaten and tortured. There's a whole hierarchy among the gang and the people that work there. And there's corruptness. And everybody involved is just a sleazy. It's a lot like those uh, women in prison movies that a lot of people have seen, right? But it's kind of like in the jungle fair. So they're, like, isolated completely uh, on this island. Um, right in the beginning, you, they punish one of the women by hacking her head off. But a lot of the movie is kind of just the women being tortured, thrown into like this bathhouse and the heat's turned up high and they're all like thriving around naked. Um, just kind of nasty tortures of like putting a metal thing in somebody's mouth. And if they like, they, uh, they have to stay completely skill still while they get whipped. And if they drop, they get burned stuff like that. Right. It's kind of like a, it's not necessarily a horror film. It's more of a woman in prison kind of film. But what makes matters worse is the plague. Actually, it's this small, it's this small place brought on by the rats or the fleas on the rats, and everybody panics. All the characters panic. All the crooked people doing things they shouldn't be doing. Everybody with their like kind of backwards conniving ways all comes to front, and the whole island erupts in chaos. There's there's the prisoners fighting for survival. There's people trying to escape the island. There's this guy who has been exiled to the island himself to work there, who came from like kind of higher class, I believe, who ends.
ends up like sticking up for the prisoners, but all out chaos unfolds. It's an entertaining movie. I enjoyed myself. A couple brutal moments, uh, some sleaze, of course, some some sex and everything. I thought this one was a pretty solid weird women in prison movie from 1970 that I hadn't heard really many people talk about. So I kind of wanted to focus a little bit and see a little bit more of the genre, more exploitation, less horror, still cool. Okay, this bad boy from 1970 is from the uh, the Blood Island collection. Now, I didn't watch all the Blood Island movies, but I did watch Beast of Blood from 1970, directed by Eddie Romero. Eddie Romero, uh, he directed a, a bunch of movies that I covered on here. He directed Beast of the Yellow Knight, which I enjoy. Pretty cool movie. Um, with uh, John Ashley is that guy. He's in all these movies. He directed Beyond Atlantis um, and um, The Twilight People. As well as all those movies, I think three of the four movies in that set, Mad, Doctor of Blood Island, which is the first one of this. And I did know that it was a direct sequel. After like five minutes, I was like, oh, I started looking into it. I was like, I'm not sure. And Blood, uh, Beast of Blood is a direct sequel to Mad, Doctor of Blood Island. But me being an idiot, I was like, it's a cheesy kind of B-movie, uh, Filipino, made in the Philippines. I was like... Wouldn't it be kind of cool to just watch the sequel like a lot of people probably did in 1970 Drive-Ins and have no idea it was a sequel? So I did that uh, without really knowing exactly the first part of the movie. I meant the first movie. So this movie opens up with this monster who's all like a skeleton. He's all green. He looks awesome. He looks cheap, but awesome. I love him. And John Ashley's on this boat and they're fighting. And this monster with an axe just rips apart like 10 people. I was like, is this the end of the last movie? It feels like the end of another movie. I don't know if it is, but that's what I'm going with. <laughs> I don't think so. But so anyways, this monster tears apart everybody on the boat. The boat kind of explodes. John Ashley goes in the water. The monster goes in the water. And Ashley's back on the island. A journalist shows up to kind of uh, find out what happened in the the first movie um uh, but uh john ashley wants to go out into the jungle or something and, and do some like find out himself but the journalist is kidnapped he goes after uses some friends from the island and everybody kind of goes after this mad doctor of blood island apparently who has decapitated the creature and is doing some experiments on him and his head's still alive half the movie the monster's head is just sitting at a thing like Lorca, Lorca, which is really kind of funny i like how the monster looks what unfolds is John Ashley kind of like uh, being wanted by every woman in the movie, of course, and them running through a lot of jungle fights and stuff and having some shootouts at the very end kind of gets big. It's entertaining. It's cheesy. It's a mad scientist kind of movie, uh, mad scientist jungle adventure sleazy exploitation movie. This is cut version because like I think this normal version was like rated PG everywhere, general guidance, but I guess this is the full on cut version that's ever been done. So there is like two nude scenes in here which I was surprised to see um, and kind of like a, you know, a sex scene even. So yeah, the beast of blood, not close to the worst movie from 1970. Not even um, it's kind of enjoyable. Liked it. Uh, don't love it. Would probably revisit. Maybe I'll watch a mad doctor of blood Island if I get some more time. But there is a couple interviews on here. Um, I, it looks like there are the elongated versions of Machete Ma Maidens kind of documentary stuff. So, yeah. Okay, this next one here is Girly, uh, a.k.a. what is it? Um, Mumsy, she's uh, Sunny, Nanny, Girly. It's got a really long name. This is from 1970, of course. We're still in the 70s. Um, and this is directed by Freddie Francis. This is the second movie he directed from 1970, the other one being The Legendary Trog. But Girly, this is obviously the better film in 1970 for Freddie Francis. And uh, this is a crazy, weird, bizarre movie. I really enjoyed this one. Uh, so what we have here is this weird, bizarre family of four, of course, Girly, Sonny, Nanny, and Mumsy. 
and I do not know how the hell this weird hierarchy hierarchy happened among them, but they're isolated and they're weird as hell. Um, in the very beginning, you kind of see them um, at the zoo doing all these weird shenanigans where we have a cameo by Michael Ripper, Hammer guy. Michael, Freddie Francis obviously did a bunch of Hammer movies, of course, uh, directed a bunch of them, cinematography on a bunch of classic movies, including The Elephant Man. He also directed Doctor and the Devils in 1985. So Freddie Francis made my top 50 favorite horror directors list. Um, so he's got some good stuff. And this one I had not seen. So I was excited to watch it. So essentially what happens here is you can kind of tell that they kind of are always trying to replace uh, somebody at their house, uh, kind of a playmate almost, and they just, they all have to follow these rules or they're kind of banished and, or, or they, you know what happens to them, right? So, um, Gurley and Sonny end up meeting this kind of, this drunk guy who's out with his girlfriend and they manipulate the situation to where it looks like this guy accidentally killed his girlfriend. So they basically tell him, you can come live with us and you just follow these rules and everything like that. And we won't call the police. So he gets thrown into this weird world. And he's like a middle-aged guy. So he obviously has this thing for Gurley, who I don't know how old she is, but she acts like a little girl and Sonny acts like a little boy. And they, they seem to be at least 17, 18, somewhere around that age. But they have this weird, everybody acts so strange. And Nanny and Mumsy have this weird thing going on. It's just an uncomfortable, weird movie, weird, weird psychology logical shit going on so this guy realizes he's in a bad situation and he starts to kind of manipulate everything and you kind of see all these people playing little things in behind and uh it ends perfectly i don't want to spoil anything and i've already said too much probably but it ends perfectly it leaves it on an open note kind of but uh yeah very funny very funny in the dark way. It's darkly, it's a dark comedic movie, but I, I really liked it. Um, everybody's performance is pretty top notch and it's just a bizarre film that I can't really talk very much about. But, uh, if you've not seen it, it's kind of a one of a kind. You kind of should owe it yourself to watch Gurley. I, I like, I'm lost for words on it. It's like weird, but they do these like games where they are like dangerous and weird as shit, but, uh, they like even obviously involve murder, but yeah. There's some funny moments. Uh, Nanny is absolutely hilarious, too. Um, just their interactions in general are pretty great. So, yeah. And you start to wonder how many people they did this to and how many people were sunny or girly or whatever. But check it out if you haven't seen it. It's good stuff. All right. We have another one from 1970. Uh, this one I covered before, too. This is the Hammer film, uh, The Vampire Lovers, the first of the Karstein trilogy, uh, based on the book Carmilla, um, which I actually read for this, why well, audiobooked Carmilla, which is, I guess it would be a novella. It's not super long. So basically what I have here is another period piece. I'm terrible with what time it takes place. Um, I will admit that the, the, I will say that the difference between the Carmilla novel and this movie are that basically structurally, our major like structure, because in the novel, we follow the young girl from uh, the second uh, family that Carmilla is with. And the other one, we kind of start off with Peter Cushing, the general, and move kind of in chronological order while this one focuses on that. And then we kind of hear that second part of the story through the general's explanation in the book. So what we have is this, uh, Carmilla is uh, clearly this uh, vampire, right? Everybody knows the story. It's called The Vampire Lovers. She's a vampire, and she travels to different places with her count, uh, and obviously another vampire, a whole like wagon of vampires in here, and they feed upon people. And it seems that in the novel and in this movie that Carmilla will form a bond with a young woman, obviously very lesbian uh, overtones and everything like that. 
And I know that Ingrid Pitt and stuff and, and the people involved, the actresses said they didn't really see that, but it's clearly there in the novel. It's clearly there, and it's just obvious. It's obvious as day now watching this. So basically she forms a bond with the young girl and feeds off her slowly, but she also goes out and kills um, other women as well, or other people as well, and feeds on them. So essentially what happens is uh, we know that Peter Cushing, his daughter, died in the very beginning, and they changed a little detail about the book as well. Peter Cushing's daughter in the book actually never met our main character here but in the nah in the movie they were best friends so so what happens is her his daughter is killed um and by the van by carmilla but under a different name and carmilla kind of kind of infiltrates because they're so separated so far apart from each other infiltrates this second family uh like i said this was a rewatch i had seen this one before for the hammer movies it was one of my favorite of the hammer films and that is due to probably the way they push the you know the lesbianism and the sexual stuff in here way more there's a lot more nudity but my main favorite part about this movie in general besides some of the cool mythology they do with the vampires and the shrouds and stuff is ingrid pitt and her character and the way she plays her character. Um, there's a line actually directly from the book where she says, everybody dies. Everybody dies when this funeral procession goes by and they're playing like re they're singing religious songs. It makes her sick to her stomach. It makes her sick probably because the religious stuff, but also it makes her sick because she hates to see death. Like it possibly she starts to feel guilty about what she's done. Um, and she doesn't seem to, she comes out of her vampirism as somebody that's evil. It almost is like she has a necessity to do it. And she actually has a closeness to some of the people that she has to feed on. And I think her performance is really good. And I think that, that, uh, her character, Camilla is a really interesting character. So, uh, yeah, there's also a much higher kill count in the movie than the, the novella, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's cool characters. There's the character here called the Retin, which I absolutely loved. And if I'm not mistaken, and he actually pops up in maybe all three of the Karstein movies as different characters, this actor, but he's really great. Um, and there's this like power struggle between him and uh, Madame Mosuel, uh, the, the French uh, kind of tutor, because she's been taken over by the Carmilla, uh, hypnotized, which she obviously seems to have a power over people that she can kind of manipulate the situation and charm them. So uh, this is a really uh, cool movie and really early for how, um, ex I don't want to say exploitative, but how much sexual stuff is in here. So Cushing is solid in it as well. Not overused or underused for sure. He's probably underused, I would say, but a pretty cool movie. Um, and then the book is really great too. I checked it out on a podcast called Classic Horror Stories or, Cla or Horror Go Classic Ghost Stories and it's a it's a public domain story so i listen to that on spotify in three parts really really good good uh reader and everything like that so if you wanted to ever hear the story and you don't have time to read check it out it's only a few hours long i think you'll enjoy it and it was really interesting for me to compare similarities between the book and the um the movie, it's not an overly wordy book either. It's not like something where um, I love Lovecraft, but sometimes it's a little wordy or anything like that. It's, it was a very easy listen. It, you know, it's a, it does have strict, uh, the descriptive detail from the time and everything, but it's not um, something that is so different from modern, you know, writing and everything. So yeah, Vampire Lovers, really great movie, really good book too. I feel like I'm ripping you guys off. I'm talking about so many good and interesting movies and I'm just not giving you enough depth on them. And I understand that. Sometimes it gets like that when you're covering 12, 15 movies. Like I said, I should really start breaking these in half. But the last one from 1970 is a doozy. Not necessarily a horror movie, but I heard many great things about this film. And this is The Honeymoon Killers. Uh, yeah, originally supposed to be directed by Mark Scorsese. You hear that a lot. Um, but he was fired because he was uh, doing like too long a camera takes or something like that. They didn't like the way he was not getting close-ups so that that was the problem uh yeah 
Um, this stars uh, Tony uh, Lobianco, who I know from some movies, but mostly from God Told Me To by Larry Cohen. And uh, I can't think of the actress's name in this movie, but she is amazing. This character here, what is her name? I got to look it up. This is based on a true story. It's Martha. It's Martha and um, Ray. Martha and Ray. So it's based on a true story called, um, what, The Love Lonely Hearts Killers. And essentially, um, Martha is this nurse. She takes care of her mother. She's lonely. She's a big woman. She's bigger for the time. And this is a period piece as well. Made, I think the story actually took place in the 50s, but it was made in 1970. Black and white, gorgeous looking movie. And the uh, the actress who plays Martha, like watching her, I'm just seeing like all these other people like take from that performance. Like I was like, oh shit, like it reminds me of, you know, the way the demeanor and the, the lines and everything. Like this is a truly groundbreaking performance same thing with uh tony lobianco um as ray he's fucking fantastic too this is and then the bit characters in this movie let me get to the plot okay essentially what we have here is uh martha is lonely like i said she meets this guy through this lonely hearts club thing or something like that where they hook up these couples and he's ray fernandez he ends up being like kind of a just a, a schemer scumbag who rips women off and everything like that um they have one night stand um and she, she kind of thinks she's screwed over, but she doesn't want it to end. So she somehow tracks him down and she says, I don't care that you do this, that you're a con artist. I still want to be with you. They start a strange relationship, but Ray doesn't know how to function any other way, but do his cons to make money. So they continue the Lonely Hearts Club thing and they're, they're finding people to kind of mooch off where she basically poses as uh, his sister, but she's overly jealous. So all these old women and these kind of lonely people that they meet, she blows it. And of course it ends in violence when they have to take that the next step. Um, the cast in here, the, the like supporting is fantastic. Like there's points where a lot of these characters I feel genuinely sorry for, but then at the same time, they're very annoying, but very naturalistic. Um, I don't know. This was like a special, the way it was acted was so special. The way it was shot was special. There's some really good shots in here but the the way the characters are portrayed the way the dialogue is done i was just so happy with this movie i thought it was a freaking masterpiece um there's a scene where this old lady she's talking to her friend on the phone and she's a later somebody that uh, basically marries ray um and she's talking earlier and she's like just you only see her face and she's like yeah i lied on my age and um just great stuff and the arguments that martha has with some of these people because obviously she's in love with ray and they don't know that it's just great but um they always go to the next step and it gets dark it gets so dark by the end of this movie it's really grueling this movie was semi-remade as uh hallelujah which i you know what? I don't think it's nearly as good as The Honeymoon Killers. This one has a really dark, wicked sense of humor about it, which I thought was tremendous and great. As the other one, I don't remember sensing much uh, humor in it. And I don't know that. I mean, that's not a problem for me at all. It's just that The Honeymoon Killers is such a much more charming, interesting character study on these people. But uh, the dialogue literally... Um, had me laughing and crying at the same time i was so sad and depressed but laughing hysterically too i don't know how they do that it's so weird i mean like i say if they can make you laugh they can make you cry when they get you laughing they got you they got you by the balls right uh or whatever terrible derogatory term i shouldn't use for that okay but they got you man they got you and um it's just a weird fine line between humor and sadness and it's here uh, as dark too. I can't believe how dark it got. Uh, anyways, just a, a super well acted film, uh, completely unique and different. And I even feel like I know she was acting around the same time, but I see divine in Martha. Like I see that character type in there. 
like if that makes any sense to anybody. This does have some great special features on here. Um, I checked out a little bit. Love Letters, a video piece by Robert Fisher featuring actors Tony Lobianco and Marilyn, uh, Marilyn Chris and editor Stan uh, Warnow. Um, and then we have Foley uh, de Tux. Uh, Todd Robinson, director of Lonely Hearts 2006, explores the true story of Lonely Hearts killers. Body Shaming, Todd Robinson explores the film. Beyond Morality, Fabrice de Woods, director of Alleluia, he's on there, discusses the film that inspired him. That's the only feature I didn't watch. But it's interesting they have one about body shaming too because obviously Martha's weight is a concern when she's nervous, she eats a lot. It's just also kind of 1970 to put a character like that in the lead role and make this story in general is kind of bad shit. I, I am curious how it would have turned out if Scorsese got to finish the movie but as it is I love it um, the editor if he actually finished the movie and I think this is only a directed film but anyways top notch movie highly recommended don't know if I would count it as a horror film generally but if I did it would be on the top of the list I'll figure it out if by the end of the time if I'm gonna put this on that list or not I don't know I really don't consider it that much of a horror film more of a dark drama comedy exploitation because that has the exploitation elements too but anyways fantastic love the hell out of it What? What is this? Zombie Bloodbath 2, Rage the Undead. Oh. What? You ain't seen Zombie Bloodbath 2, Rage the Undead? No, I guess I must have missed that one. You ain't seen nothing. You ain't seen nothing. I've seen way more than you. Mm -hmm. You haven't seen Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, Casino, Cannibal Holocaust, The Beginning, The Great Escape, Kelly's Heroes. Once upon a time in the fucking West! You haven't seen War and Peace, Pink Flamingos, Casablanca, Gone with the Wind, Citizen Game, The Oven and the Chipmunks Christmas Special. You haven't seen, hmm, what else haven't you seen? The Magnificent Seven? The Magnificent Seven Ride Again? The Magnificent Seven Are Back? Is that a movie? And last of all, you ain't seen Zombie Bloodbath 2, Rage of the Undead. And you haven't seen War and Peace. I ain't watching War and Peace. The hell you are. Fuck War and Peace. All right, we're here for You Ain't Seen. And this is your pick for me. Yes. This was made in 2002. Mm -hmm. And this is Lilo and Stitch, which I didn't want to watch. Not because I knew <laughs> I didn't like it, but it's just... It's weird for this channel, but I review anything. I'll watch anything. It's good to mix up your movies, not to watch the same things over and over again, which is what I do 90% of the time. I think I, this week I watched six spaghetti westerns and like five, six movies from 1970 and yeah. then another Asian horror. That's what I like. That's what I watch. I think we need something not so glum to brighten the week. This well, is, this how is come this is the movie. only movie of the week that almost made me cry besides Massacre Time? Well, I'll be honest, I cried like probably like every five <laughs> minutes in this movie. I don't know why it makes me cry. That's the funny thing is on Disney movies, um, <laughs> literally, like if they're if they're good Disney movies or, or at least ones that have some sort of like impact, <laughs> I will like get teary eyed or sad during like any kid's movie that I enjoyed as a kid or one that I haven't seen that's decent. Mm -hmm. You come here. Well, you know, I, I feel like most Disney movies don't make me cry, but this one in particular, for some reason, it just always strikes me. And I think it's because, I, I don't know, I just, I think all the characters are fun. I think the situation <laughs> Sorry. that they're in is a a very real life scenario. Yeah, like especially you, the, the human aspect. Very realistic. So, um, the, so the plot of this movie is, essentially, we have um, this little girl, Lilo, 
mm-hmm. and her sister uh, Nani. Nani. Nani, and uh, the, she has to take care of her because their parents died tragically. They live in Hawaii. Um, they're kind of struggling. They don't have much money, everything like that. And she's just kind of a troublemaking kid. Doesn't really fit in. Likes dark, weird things. Nobody else really cares for her, understands her. Not even her own sister can really understand her. So <clears throat> one day there's a like a, a social service worker that shows up played by voiced by Ving Rames, which is hilarious. Mm-hmm. Basically doing his best Marcellus Wallace, which was who he played in Pulp Fiction. I, Ving Rames kind of always does yeah. that. He has that, we're going to get medieval out he's, <laughs> he's great in this. <clears throat> Very funny. <clears throat> Sorry, I cannot. Something in my throat. <laughs> so essentially what happens here, <clears throat> I'm not going to die here. We might have to restart. Do you want to go take a water? <sighs> so I'm going to die. So you guys watch Mr. Parker die on camera, which is how I should. How I should go out. So anyways, uh, social service worker starts to realize the terrible, almost completely over the top ridiculous situations that happen. Mm-hmm. It only is amplified when they go to pick up a dog, which is actually not a dog, but an escaped scientific experiment from space. Think Critters, think Night of the Creeps, think 90% of any other sci-fi 80s kind of, you know, tropey things. Mm-hmm. So Stitch is this weird genetically enhanced, uh, created in a lab character that also doesn't fit in anywhere doesn't belong so he is adopted by lilo and causes much more trouble obviously there's going to be a big turmoil they send some aliens to try to bring stitch back to their planet that's kind of the deal yeah one of them's kevin mcdonald yes love of my life I, I adore Kids Please in the Hall so because you grew up watching I, I, I did stuff. like kid, Kids in the Hall. See, I was an SNL, Mad <laughs> TV, SCTV kid growing up. I liked all the skit stuff. Um, I never got into Monty Python as a kid, and I never got into Kids in the Hall, even though we watched Kids in the Hall a little bit. <laughs> SNL, SCTV, Mad TV, everybody knows who those people are. Nobody knows who Kevin McDonald is. I do. Kevin McDonald was also in Invader Zim. He was one of the tallest aliens. Yeah. Uh, and the other guy, the other guy from Kids in the Hall, Dave. Something? Dave Tom? No, Dave Tom. Dave Foley. Dave Foley. Dave Thomas was, was in Kevin SCTV. McDonald and uh, um, Dave Foley. Yeah, Dave Foley was. He's also in. Popped up in the show. Yeah. It's always Sunny Philadelphia. Who else was in? There's a couple. Anyways. Anyways, um, this is the second time Kevin McDonald <laughs> has played an alien in an animated feature. Okay. So this is your pick. So like I said. I do like Disney movies. I did laugh, like, because I paused it just for a split second to go to the, to get something from the fridge, because mm-hmm. I eat all the time when I'm watching movies. And there was a fish carrying a sandwich, and I was like, "What the <laughs> hell is this?" Like the credits, and then you're like, "It plays into it later." I was like, "Does it?" I was like, "Is that just like a little gimme thing here?" But I don't know. I don't like. I'm sitting on babbling on. I laughed quite a bit during this. Um, it was very enjoyable, and there's a moment in here that actually got to me. Like she has this doll that she made that's like homemade it's really kind of ratty and scary and she throws it down because she's upset and then she like runs back really quick and picks it up and that was me like as a kid like i'd get upset or mad at something and then i'd feel bad at things i'd feel bad for like inanimate objects Mm -hmm. which is very strange like i still have my childhood stuffed animal Oh, I, which I is crazy. Yeah. yeah, just the just the one I was like liked as a kid. I keep it safe, which is weird. So I'm like sentimental in the weirdest ways, but not sentimental in the in the ways that people like. I don't celebrate holidays in the fact of like every year I watch this movie. I was like, I don't do that. Right. There's movies that affect me, but if I feel like watching Scrooge in the summer, I'll put it Scrooge. I never care mm-hmm. about that kind of stuff. Uh, so like, there's these little sentimental like things in there that really touched me, and I thought were really enjoyable. 
Um, it, it's playing on a lot of the sci-fi tropes that we all like. Like I said, the kind of monster escapes on a planet. Terrorvision's oh, yeah. the same deal. So, well, they, I mean, there's a whole scene where they're playing tarantula in yeah, a in the TV background. shop. You know what I mean? And then and Stitch, Stitch loves it. it. Yeah, he loves it later on. Um, Stitch is that classic character too, where like he's really dislikable and kind of mean spirited at first because he's made to only just destroy everything in sight because he's made by a mad scientist. Um, so he obviously is going to come around, right? And like it, the the further these movies get into like the future, like kids movies, Disney movies, it seems like the characters get worse and worse, and then they have to come around even more and more. Wait, <laughs> like, what, wait, what do you mean? Because I feel like if this was made in the '90s, '80s, or '90s, the character wouldn't be that bad. They would just be slightly bad and come around, like. Yeah, so the, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it and why I wanted to watch this movie okay. is that that this is a very different. Um, type of Disney movie than what like we grew up with in like the 90s and, and even more so in like the 80s, 50s, 60s. Um, you know, Disney has always had like the whole princess thing. Um, then during like the whole Renaissance era, I think that's when the princess thing probably really like you had like on one hand you had the princess movies and then you had like the action adventure movies like, like Hercules. Technically, Mulan. Are you um, talking about the '90s then? Well, this is going into the '90s. Um, so that was beforehand. Like, they still had like Snow White. Well, yeah, Sleeping they had Beauty. Snow White, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, um, Corella Deville. <laughs> One hundred one Dalmatians. That was an '90s though, wasn't it? No, Corella, uh, that was a uh, '70s something. One hundred one Dalmatians. Is that early? I would have never yeah, guessed. Yeah. Um, based off a book, actually. But anyways, um, so. You know, Disney kind of like flops in the 80s with like Dark Crystal and Great Mouse Detective. Not Dark Crystal, Black Cauldron. Black Cauldron. Um, you know, then, you know, then they have the Renaissance, they have Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, like, oh, Disney's doing great again. And then like they fucked up. And like after like Hercules, like after that era, they started, they went into, I think it was Atlantis. And Atlantis started like dipping them down again. And they had Emperor's New Groove, which is, I think, a more adult-oriented Disney film, animated Disney film. Um, you know, its real, its strong thing is its cast of characters and its voice talent. Um, you know, and that that one it was just—it was an atypical Disney movie. So is Lilo and Stitch. I think both of them really stand out when compared to, you know, what Disney animation was going through at the time. And then after Lilo and Stitch, they release. Treasure Planet, and that's when they needed Pixar to bring them out well, of bankruptcy. Toy for, Story did that, right? Not so much Toy Story. I'm t Toy Story was or early. Finding Nemo. It was it was Little Nemo. Little Nemo. Finding no, Nemo. Finding, Nemo. Finding Nemo. Little Nemo yeah. is a different movie. Yeah, we're gonna watch Little Nemo at some point because he never seen it. See, I, I I like cartoons. I enjoy them every time I watch them. But uh, the thing is, I don't like have a, 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 a certain expertise. When I was a kid, I was I watched ca cartoons, but. Mm -hmm. My favorite kids' movies were stuff like Monster Squad and Little Monsters and Ernest Scared Stupid and Goonies. And, like, it got to the point where I was like, that's a great kids' movie. He's like, Dave, Ghoulies 2 is not a kids' movie. I'm, like, seven, <laughs> like, trying to show, like, my like cousin this stuff. And he's, like, six. And, like, friends are like, this is weird. And they're all like, I'm like, I don't get it. Ghoulies 2 is a great kids' film. It's like, what? I mean, just watch Gremlins 2, 1. That was I, I mean, mistake. I liked Gremlins as well. <laughs> like, I would consider Gremlins a kids' movie as a kid. So mm -hmm. I was a strange kid. Uh... No, I enjoy this. Like I said, it, it's that heartfelt thing. It's also short. It's an hour and 25 yeah. minutes. Gets to the point. Nowadays, I don't think they can make a family movie or a movie that would go to the theaters that wouldn't play for three hours. I don't think Disney is capable of cutting a movie over uh, under two well, hours. I, their, their animation is usually short or run time, but animation is expensive. Yeah. 
Especially if it's sell. You oh, know. We watched this on Disney Plus. And yeah, we did I must admit, I, I know Disney is an evil corporation, but they look great on Disney Plus. Disney's an evil corporation now. Disney, <laughs> 90 and 2000, still kind of evil, still with the child labor and, you know, all that stuff. But, like, you know, D- Disney has always had its up and downs. It's always been, you know, a struggling underdog or, like, top of the world. Right now, it's at the top of the world. It's weird that they cut uh, all that stuff out of this version. Which stuff? Nemo massacred that family. Mm-hmm. Or, um, and, uh, Stitch. Well, you know, there is an edited scene. I was just kidding. Oh, I was just okay. making it up. I don't know what's edited. Well, here. what's, ed- you know, when they're chasing each other in the spaceship and they fly through, like, the mountains and the volcanoes? Yeah. That was originally supposed to be whatever the capital is of oh, Hawaii. Hawaii. Yeah, Maui? No, that, that's a character. It's not how it, Honolulu? Honolulu? Yeah, it's supposed to be driving through a large city because, you know, Stitch has that that whole thing where he wants to destroy a large city and, and, you know, he's on an island. But this came out, like, right at the time of 9-11. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, so they changed that, it from this... Like, it was all animated, think, all completed. Think about this. So, like, 9-11 changed everything. It's it's like a, it's like an AD thing, to be honest. Like, yeah. And COVID probably is going to be like that, too, just probably. in terms of, like, referencing movies and things like that. Like, that was during COVID, oh, so they the couldn't go to theaters. Because I remember <laughs> not, 80% of the movies that came out around 9-11 or were supposed to within the couple of years after always were like, well, we couldn't release Idle Hands because the violence of 9-11 uh, or Columbine. Columbine's another one. It was Columbine for that Columbine one. It's Columbine, one. 9-11, COVID. These things mm-hmm. just, like literally changed the trajectory of films in a ways or release schedules. Or they were just there to blame something for it not doing well or, or right. what happened. So it's, well, like, it's kind of strange. Like look at War of the Worlds, uh, the Orson Steven Wells Spielberg reading one. Thing. Oh, um, that one. That, I mean, that one is a direct response to 9-11. Um, it, I mean, it's about blowing up New York City, more or less. Um, like, uh, even, like, animated shows like Futurama, the opening credits, at the end of the credit always had, like, the spaceship crash into a giant TV screen. They cut that bit out. So weird. In the opening credits. I mean, 9-11's one of those, like, influential things that kind of affected the course that we're on now, you know? Exactly. So, anyways, let's get back to the movie. Is there anything yeah. else you wanted to say about it? Um, I think that it's it's a really pretty movie. I love the watercolor background. Yeah, it looks very good. I like the um, underwater stuff was good. The underwater stuff was good. Um, the only character that I think they kind of like rush through in drawing is uh, the David character. He, oh, he yeah. just always looks like strangely off model every time that he appears on screen. Like I, I don't know why. I did like the uh, the one character. Oh, geez, what was it? The the background character who constantly has yes. the mint chocolate chip ice cream, and he's like the tourist, and it keeps getting knocked down. And he's just like the last time it happens, it's literally the most like ridiculous thing ever. <laughs> like he literally could be killed, and like this giant spacecraft just bumps off his cone, and he's just like. <laughs> he his just head just goes up. down. Yeah, he's just done. He's not getting another ice cream cone. The kid is so weird. Like she has pictures of tourists on her wall. She takes pictures of like like out of shape like like white tourists and puts mm-hmm. them on her wall. And it's just like she kind of is like a serial killer. Like almost like a weird like type of kid oh, that yeah. would grow up. So I feel like any weird kid can relate to Lilo well. Like because I did. Like with the the, the like. The anger as a young mm-hmm. kid, being infatuated with weird things, and also just kind of being like a hyperactive child. You know, and like I've seen a lot of people compare this movie to like the actual like colonization and like statehood of Hawaii itself. Like the song that uh, Nani sings to Lila when they're on the hammock is the, so- the song that their queen sang like right before the U.S. government, you know, came in and made Hawaii a state, you know, and... 
in the, in this movie, what force is breaking apart Lilo and Nani's you know family unit, but the U.S. government and child services? Event turns out to be a Men in Black. But to be brutally honest, though, there's good reason because all Ving Rhames oh, yeah. has seen is the awful. They laid the right. house burned down, left her alone, didn't have well, a job, got fired from jobs. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean it's it's good reasons in this movie, but I mean the parallel is yes, still yeah, there. Yeah. You know, like the, this queen sings the song to her subjects as the government is like you well, know removing her from her throne, and now here we have. Have you been watching Lindsay Ellis or something? I don't think does Lindsay Ellis touch. Upon, I know somebody does, but I don't know. I, I mean, these are just common things yeah. that have been. I was just watching it like, Stitch is a jerk. It's probably because he had his burger. <laughs> he couldn't get his ice cream. That's like, like, me. This is what actually, for in my top five Disney movies, I mean, so like, I, I've seen that a lot, you know, when it came out. I haven't probably watched it maybe in 10 plus years. My favorite Disney movie mm-hmm. is the best Disney movie, of course. Is it that one with... Uh, Hold on, don't tell me. Um, something Wicked? Something Wicked This I, Way I Comes. You, you, you like that fucking weird shit. Like, I love that. Dude, it's a kid's movie. It's another weird kid's movie that I love. But that's a, that's a doll, isn't it? What? Isn't that like a... It's a, it's a live action. No, not, no. What's it's a um, Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury. I'm yeah. thinking Salvador Dahl or whatever. Salvador Dali? No. Who's he ever... Who, who, who did James and the Giant Peach? You got Ra, Ra, Ronald Dahl. Ronald or Roger Dahl. Dahl. Ronald. I think it's Ronald. He also did The Witches and Willy Wonka. Yeah. 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 That guy's weird, too. His Bradbury and Dahl, I always confuse. Bradbury, though, is not as weird. The Halloween tree is great, too. Um, they, they both have those, like, like right, so, I'm going to write a book about a kid being tortured. Yeah, that's And then he grows up Kids in Peril man. are the best kids' <laughs> movies. That's why they always, like, it, somehow when you watch a movie where the main focus is the kid, it immediately puts me into the shoes of a kid. Mm. I mentioned that with It or anything, like Goonies and Monster Squad, you, like, somehow revert back for me. And, like, it just, it's a weird, weird way to, like, evoke your childhood emotions. It can, I, and, like, like I said, little monsters, literally. When I was watching this, I noticed a score by Alan, uh, Sil- I never can say Silver Street, whatever his last name is. This dude's one of the big composers. Mm-hmm. And I felt like the score was similar to Little Monsters. And it's not the same composer or anything, but there were some similar kind of like emotional beats in there that just immediately reminded me of Little Monsters. And I like the sadness and the family drama and stuff put me mm-hmm. like in the scene when Maurice is sitting on the bed trying to comfort Brian about his parents. He's like, I never had parents at all. And that, that whole scene, I don't know, it just kind of reminded me of this. I don't know. Like, there's always family drama within a Disney movie. Oh, yeah. And any kid's movie, there seems to be somewhat. And I, I do think that one of the strongest films, or one of the, like, the strongest component about this film is that it's tonally the same throughout the whole movie. And I think a lot of Disney movies, especially of the 90s, have tonal issues where, like, there's a lot of, like, pop cultural references in them. Like, you have a very serious... Plot, but then you have like a character like the genie or the gargoyles on Hunchback of Notre Dame, or you know where it's Timon like Timon and Pumbaa. Timon and Pumbaa. <laughs> That's immediately um, who I thought. I was like Timon and Pumbaa. You know, and <laughs> both, uh, both with this. And, well, they and need I think comedic beats because they the need kids the co- can't take that. Stuff. Right, they need the comedic beats, you know. But like, especially with Hunchback, I mean, it's always had a tonal problem. Like you have like in the in the movie, it's a judge, but in the book, he's a priest. But you have you know. Frollo, like, trying to, like, literally, like, subjugate and, like, you know, rape a, a, a Roma girl. And then you have, like, the gargoyles, like, making references to, like, I don't know, Donnie Dark, whatever the hell movie came out at the time. Not Donnie Dark, but, you know, just kind of, like, 
like just weird stuff happened. But in Lilo and Stitch and also with Emperor's New Groove, because of the tone that they set on the outset, those things fit better for the narrative. You're not cutting away to just weird other movie impressions. Well, Stitch is complete, like, over the top and can do anything, oh, too. Yeah, I yeah. love the frog gag. That I stupid do like frog the frog gag. He's just so, so oblivious mm -hmm. to everything that's happening, and he just managed to sit on the road and never get hit. Right, and I, yeah. I, I love Jumba. I think Jumba has Jumba's the best. really funny. The best line in the whole movie. Yeah, he's got that good line. Right. What was that line he um, said? It's like, what must it like to be... He's, he's like, yo, he created him because Sitch has no purpose other than destruction. So he's like... And he has no family. Right. He has no family. He has no nothing. And so Jumba's like, what must it be like to have nothing, not even memories to visit in the middle of the night? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that got me. Oh, yeah. That would be rough because no matter what, you still have your, your history. That's kind of like if mm -hmm. you look at Blade Runner. That's why yeah. it makes that so interesting, mm -hmm. too, because in a, in a way, the replicants, they don't have anything. They don't have anything. But that makes the genius of Blade Runner. I know I'm going on a thing here because the um, Rucker Howard still has the feelings and emotion that he's gained. He understands the memories. Life. That's so weird. Like it, It's genius that these characters, in a lot of movies, they'll do artificial intelligence mm -hmm. similar to um, uh, T-800 in Terminator 2. Like He mm -hmm. understands, you know. Something about something that has such a short lifespan, enjoying and understanding something about life more than we do, can right. help us understand life. Even though it's just a movie. Same thing with, like, a Stitch or yeah. Terminator or fucking Rugger Howard. What right. was his name in that? Beatty? Betty? Beatty? Betty? Oh, Jesus. I knew it until you said it. Batty? Batty? Batty, something like something that. Something like that. It is. It's, uh, geez, I can't remember. Here's in the rain guy. Yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. improv that, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait. I'm going to get, we'll get the 4K of Blade Runner rewatch that for but sure. But that, you know, that's always been one of my favorite, you know, little messages or I don't know what you would call them. Well, I mean, it, I don't know. Just like, you know, what, what is life? What is experience? And, you know, what is your experience once you're gone? I mean, you know, in Stitch's case, he doesn't have any experience. Yeah. So he has nothing to. Well, he's got to look for his own family. Yes, a broken family. And they need their family that's broken. And together, right. they have a whole theme with the family. Oh, yeah. It. The whole theme is, you know, the whole Ohana trope. Um, I, I do think, like, for years and years, Disney was always kind of being pointed the finger at for only keeping, like, certain princesses or stereotypical yeah. princesses and stuff like that. It is nice to see characters from Hawaii. Like, because oh, yeah. you don't see that many. I don't think you saw very many in 2002. And I'm going to be mm -hmm. honest, like, The Rock was, like, one of those big stars that was actually Samoan. Like, he yeah. broke through. Like, you think about that, you know what I mean? Well, he was in Moana, but I mean, that yeah. was... But I, I, that was way... But in wrestling later. and stuff, he, you know, Brock was half African-American, half Samoan, and mm -hmm. it's just like... I feel like that's finally... Like, athletes have always been, like, big in Samoa. You know what I mean? Like, they're very good. Oh, like, yeah. a lot of athletes come from that small little area of the world, mm -hmm. and it's nice to see kind of little focus on them in movies because it's an interesting culture, and it's different, too. It's not the same shit we see all the time. Well, it's a it's a... Geographically speaking, a large area of the world. I mean, it's the entire. But I'm just saying a very Pacific, small, but, but a very small, small population. And then if you look at it, how many athletes come from right. it is is crazy. Right. I mean, you know, they each they all have their own unique customs traits. Yeah. But I mean, they're all related at the same time too. Yeah. Um, oh, has always been. It's just a cool area to neat. focus. Yeah. A Disney movie in 2002. I don't think it was very typical. No, not not so much. No. I mean, I think like beyond. You know, you have Lilo, which, you know, that, that that's Hawaiian, but then, like, you had, like, the Roman Hunchback. Uh, well, those Pocahontas, are classic stories. Well, here, here's what's weird. Like, is this going to sound strange, or is this going to be just me being old? Like, 
I feel like now when they do things and set it in geographical locations, they're like, well, we got to have this now. And it's almost just like forced. I don't think that it's This forced. one doesn't like feel like that at all. Or do you think that's just older people start seeing things that way and it's not actually accurate? Well, you know, like when they, when they did this stuff in the 90s, like w- with Aladdin and with, uh, you know, Hunchback and Pocahontas, like it was mostly just old white guys like making the decisions. And occasionally they would ask people of those cultures, you know, like, can you give us a hand, you know. But like now I think it's more, they're more in inviting of those people to actually get accurate to actually right to have you know like a more like a stronger input into the final product such as moana um and really i think moana is the only one that really came out that i think that they really tried i mean what i'm trying to think of whatever disney movies have like non like like a non-white non-eurocentric I don't watch too many new theme. Disney movies. Like I said, I didn't even they, see. They had. I didn't the, um, even see Lilo and Stitch. That was new for me. Right, exactly. I mean, they so. they, they had uh, the the they had the dead one. Um, I didn't watch that one. Is that Coco or something? I didn't watch that one yet because I'm really slow when it comes to watching movies. It takes me forever to get around. I'm trying to, to think it. of the last animated movie I saw in theaters would have been The Strings of Kobo, right or Kobo? Yeah, we did watch that one. But I don't think that one was Disney. No, it wasn't Disney. I don't know who did that one. That one was okay. That was a strange film. Right. Had some great moments. In I just, films. I've always liked animation. I like anime. I like Western animation. I like comics. So it's like, yeah, since I want to watch bright, colorful things flash around on the screen. I this, mean, this one was very enjoyable. I gave it four yeah. out of five for a first time watch. Mm-hmm. Just a first time. And I, like I said, it, it was had a nice emotional core. It's just mm-hmm. something a little different. I know what we didn't focus on the movie completely and you went on the history of Disney. Yeah, I kind I kind of like went but on. But it was tangent. good. That's but fine. It's it you know it's it's a fine fun movie. I, to me, it's a five star. But like I said, it is in my top five of the. What are Disney your top films. five? Oh yeah, I don't know. I, I Little and Stitch, uh, Black Cauldron, um, Hunchback. I really like Hunchback. I don't know why. I just really like Hunchback. I know it has its problems. Those are the top three, and then uh, I don't know Robin Hood because you know. Deep down, I'm a furry. Um, All right, so here we go. Stop it. Don't say stop. Like <laughs> then maybe Nightmare Before Christmas. Is that one count? Yeah, it yeah, that, that's Okay, so no particular order off the top of my head. Not watching half of these movies in years. Uh-huh. Something Wicked This Way Comes. Nightmare Before Christmas. Robin Hood. Gotta go Dumbo. Dumbo. I, I can't I saw Dumbo. a spot with Dumbo. I think was a kid. I just, I don't know. I probably couldn't watch the first 10 minutes of Dumbo without crying like a baby. <laughs> Same thing with American Tale, which isn't a Disney. Right, but, that's a um, Jeez, what would another one be I always liked? I can't think of that. There's got to be a couple live action ones that I really dig in there too. I like the live like action. Like Escape the Witch Mountain or whatever. Return to Witch Mountain. Escape <laughs> Witch. Um, oh, geez. Um, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is a Disney. Is that a Disney? Yeah, I go Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is pretty awesome, too. Oh, okay. Yeah, that one is a I'd good love one. to rewatch that one. I used to watch that one all the time as a kid. I, I did like that one. Yeah. I, I only liked the first one. I don't like anything like Honey, that I Blew Up the Baby. It was so weird to me. Also, the that, baby looked like Chucky. That, <laughs> that, that one was bad. I remember not liking that one when it came out. And then there was a third one, Honey, We Shrunk Ourselves, and it was way too late. Right. But 20 it, years too late. It honestly wasn't bad. It wasn't. I, I think enjoyed it was a it. Disney original. It was cheaper. Yeah. It made Rick Moranis want to quit. Was Rick that, Moranis in that one? Yeah, I don't know if that's what made him want to quit. I'm just saying I he probably know. just wanted to be with his family like right, any, right. any normal person would be after years and years <laughs> of entertaining everyone. Uh, so, yeah, anyways, very fun. Next week, I'm going to pick, you ain't seen, I'm going to pick a 1970 movie. We're going to do Dorian Gray. 
Dorian Gray, The Secret Life of Dorian Gray by Massimo Dallamano, who directed one of the movies this week I talked about. I don't know what you're talking about. You didn't even make the film yet. Yeah, we're actually shooting this early. Yeah, we are. Yeah, because I can't be bothered. Because no, because nobody has any time because every workplace that you're... If you're working currently, you are working lots of overtime everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, uh, got to make up for that free time they gave us off. <laughs> I, even though we had to work through this whole thing. Yeah, I had to work through yeah, the whole thing. And now even more so. It's like, okay, I don't want to do it. <laughs> where, where, where? We're crying. I literally have to go to work in like two hours and, I, and then... It's like a 16 you hour shift. You literally like two hours. Yeah, I know. It's hell. It's hell. I, I should just become a vagabond. No. Yeah. Talk about Lilo and Stitch on the street. <laughs> Remember when... I don't It's know really no know. different than what I do now. It's, yeah. you know... We're done. Right. Just now I have a paycheck. Done. Bye. All right. Let's get into these questions. Um, so basically, I asked you guys... Um, what did I ask you guys last time? Jeez, I can't even remember... Uh, oh, movie! your favorite movie-related commentary. Ja Punk, to slightly break the rules of your question, recently I listened to a director's commentary to Airplane, 1980. Got interesting factoids of the production, like how the film has three directors and that challenged the way DGA operates. Also, those guys are pretty funny. Their movies is an extension of their day-to-day goofing off. Plenty of the other crew and cast commentaries are good and enhance the movies we watch. I agree. Context, context, context. Ken Coakley, when you talked about double features and mentioned Dawn of the Dead and Zombie, I thought of the Midnight to Noon Horror Marathon with Zombie theme. It started with the original Night of the Living Dead, then Lucio Fulci's Zombie, and then with Day of the Dead. The programmer told me that he intended to have Night and Dawn as bookends so he could take us from night into the day. He said he tried to get Dawn dead to play in the middle at dawn, but it was too tough to get. Uh, De Niro Costco. Uh, Costco, keep doing what you're doing, bro. Love the content. You were killing it. Thank you very much. Uh, Mike Obey. There we go. Uh, two is my favorite movie related. Two of my favorite movie related documentaries are More Brains, A Return to Living Dead, and John Carpenter's A Thing. Terror Take Shape. I really enjoy your content, Mr. Parker. I look forward to your videos every week. Keep up the great work. Thank you very much. I think this week I'm, I'm gonna be honest. A little sloppy. I felt real sloppy, real off. Worked a lot of hours this week. Excuse me. But no, I just felt a little off this week. I, I feel like my um, detail wasn't as good, um, and I just kind of like. A little sloppy, a little sloppy, if it makes any sense. Uh, Ken Coakley, Document of the Dead is my favorite documentary. I'm a George Romero movie junkie. I first saw Document 93 when my video store had it for rental. I was dying to see it for 10 years after reading about it in Fangoria. At the time, there was only the U.S. theatrical cut of Dawn of the Dead that was available, and the documentary showed extra footage from the movie. Ray Frumke's added footage of being on the set of Two Evil Eyes, where Romero hinted at possible fourth death film. It was also a good tutorial on making films with your own vision and how to deal with the MPAA. Yeah, I, I've watched Document of the Dead. Good stuff. Um, Romero's my favorite director. Of course I watched Document of the Dead. I love that line in there when he's like, uh, Roy Frumke says, night's the beginning and dawn's the end. And George says, no, no, zombies are still dumb. I love that. I love that. It just gives me chills. Uh, Isamisio, Lilo and Stitch. I'm looking forward to that one. Ha ha. Not going to lie. The movie does reek mad vaca- vacation vibes. I actually have a stay uh, staycation coming up in a week or so. This is uh, So this is great timing. I agree. Ari Aster is great when it comes to portraying grief in his films. Real unhabitated. Uh, I can't say that word. There we go. There's the one of the week right here. Unhabitated. Uh, I cannot say it. I don't know what it is. Unhabitated. I can't say it. I'm done. I'm done doing it. 
I'm try- I can't do it. I'm a moron today. I Like I said, I get those tongue twisters every once in a while where I cannot say the word no matter what. If I'm looking at the word, but if somebody said it, I can repeat it. It's just weird. Raw grief, um, as it should be. I hope he continues to make horror films, but it, I'd also understand if he wants to explore other genres. Wicked City and Buffalo 66 are both awesome flicks. Love Ricci and Gallo's strange relationship in the movie. That ending, too. Wonderfully written, especially when you find yourself rooting for them and the decision he makes. The perfect romantic film for non-romantics. Adam Watson do you have any other people who you might like to review with i've seen some of your funky friends at the conventions don't take that the wrong way i meant like to change it up a bit well jeremy's gonna do one every week but i would definitely like to have other people come in but you know it's not been easy lately obviously conventions have not been happening and it's just kind of like i've been super busy with work on top of like covid and shit people coming over so it can get out of the rhythm of people hanging out so i'll get back into it shortly barry a-t-a-k-a b-t-k hello mr parker i think everyone is going to say hearts of darkness and is one of my favorites for sure but recently i saw a personal journey with mark scorsese through american movies and it blew my mind i still haven't finished the whole thing it got halfway through it it's easily one of those films you could revisit yearly for any suggestions for older movies to see and keep revisiting the amazing the richness of america's film history through martin's eyes i am the ice lord what's the story of gutter balls 2 you hear that other films will be releasing it do you know about when dave i don't know when but they'll definitely be releasing it I think that and Big Fucking Monster are going to be the last ones because they probably need some post-production work and everything like that. Maybe some editing and fine-tuning and everything. So those will probably be last. I know that Gutterballs 2, he made a version. He made a movie and then like he was unhappy with it. So basically he wanted to go reshoot more or, ref- or something like that. I don't know 100%. Uh, and then we have uh, Rusky uh, Medovidget. You probably get told this a lot, but you're a quite handsome dude. Thank you very much. Um not as much as you would think, right? I'm just kidding. Uh, Mike Malloy, A Decade Under the Influence. Mark Humphreys, Not Quite Hollywood, The Brilliant Exploitation Documentary. Troy Howarth, Hearts of Darkness and Burden of Dreams. Paul Payne, Room 237. Brandon Terry, Beyond Horror from Jesse Seitz and Marcus Cook. Kyle Jonathan, Overnight. Gordon Briggs, Celluloid Closet. Uh, Matt So. So Kalecki, uh, Diary of a Deadbeat, Matt Jones, Everything or Nothing, De Palma, Stanley Kubrick, A Life in the Pictures, Al Blyton, Eurocrime, Colin Hives, American Movie, Jordan Baby, Capturing the Freemans, Jack Criddle, Harold and Lillian, The Hollywood Love Story, Persistence of Vision, Documentary, um, American Movie, Horror Noir, Z Channel, and Magnificent Obsession, The Act of Killing, Camera Person, Act of Killing, camera person. Seer, then he has series. Hollywood, 1980, A Personal Journey with Mark Scorsese through American Cinema, The Story of Film, and Odyssey. James Turner, so many good ones, but in terms of what I feel the most informative, well-produced, and entertaining, nothing has made me want to see an entire other world of films I hadn't yet, like Not Quite Hollywood. Gabrielle Juliet, Never Sleep Again, and Crystal Lake Memories. Stephen McGavran, um, Video Nasties, The Definitive Guide. Nathan Thomas Milliner, Jorowski's Jodorowsky's Dune, Burden of Dreams, Cameraman, The Life and Work of Jack Cardiff, Corman's World, uh, Milius, Freakin' Uncut, Film Worker, for some not yet mentioned, Scott Shermer, Mongols and Movie Stars, six-hour documentary, Turner Classic Movies about made about Hollywood, Michael Veers, Scott Shermer, This I Need to Track Down, Nathan Thomas Miller also does Best Worst Movie, Hitchcock, Truffaut, Overnight, Easy Rider, Raging Bulls, Lost Soul, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau, Lost in La Macha, Jim and Andy, and 7852, Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound, that's another one I guess, uh, JP Andrika, The Kid Stays in the Picture, 
Inicio Hernandez, Video Nasty's Definitive Guide Volume 1 and 2, Joachim Johansson, The Bandit, Dustin Mills, American Movie, Inicio Hernandez, also Unearthed and Untold, The Path to Pet Cemetery, Nicholas Hunt, You're So Cool, Brewster, The Story of Fright Night 1 and 2, Wolfman's Got Nards, The Monster Squad, Bill Casanelli, Crystal Lake Memories for me, and the one about the making of Poultrygeist. David Gibson, I really love the story of film and Odyssey and Lost Souls. Peter England, Heart of Darkness, Vision of Light, Easy Rider. Visions of Light, sorry. Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Glenn D. Worthington, Yordorowski's Dune, 100%. You could feel really feel the passion he had for the project, and you could tell it still hurts him that he couldn't get it made. Um, Jamal Potter, uh, but it's still understandable that he didn't, though. Yeah. Lee Bishop, More Brains, A Return of the Living Dead, Crystal Lake Memories, Never Sleep Again. Woodson Hughes, uh, Kevin Bar Brownlow's works, especially Hollywood and Cinema Europe. Barry O'Connell, Wreckage and Rage, The Making of Alien 3. Uh, Aaron Yervina, Full Tolt Bilgie, Hearts of Darkness. Rob Kowazinski, Building Faulty City, City of Living Dead, Arrow. Uh, Chris Genro, Lost Soul, The Doom Journey of Richard Stanley's Island, Dr. Moreau. Daniel Detella. Herzog's Burden of Dreams, Michael Spinelli, Room 237, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, First Two Off Top, Will Carnell, Going to Pieces, Hollywood 25 Years of Terror, The Shark is Still Working, Steve Friedel, The Life and Times of David James Parker, that would be boring. Um, Kevin Nicholson, Flesh and Blood, The Hammer Heritage of Horror, They Came from the Swamp, The William Graffay Collection, Matthew Matson, American Movie, John Bludgeoned, Hard to Decide Between Machete Maidens or Eaten Alive, The Rise and the Fall of the Italian Cannibal Film, Vincent uh, Pirarella, how do you say that? Perry uh, Perry uh, Final Cut is really good. Uh, Matthew Hudson, Hearts of Darkness. The filmmaker's Apocalypse is up there. I might like it as much as Apocalypse Now. Addison Heath, Not Quite Hollywood. Randall Stater. Uh, or Stodder. Hearts of Darkness is fantastic. Dangerous Days. Uh, Blade Runner Doc, so fucking good. Maybe a little biased, though, as it's my favorite film of all time. Lost Souls, Island of Dr. Monroe, fantastic doc. Wreckage and Rage, Alien 3 documentary. And I forgot the press, Seymour. I do that on at least one comment there. Sorry about that. Um, Christopher Coldenberg, Lost Souls, Marcus Cook. It's not out yet, but I just saw a sneak peek of Sean Donahue's new documentary called The Blood and Guts and Sunshine about the history of Horse Shot in Florida. It's really fucking great. Very cool. Rob Laub, uh, wasn't there a Universal doc shown on TCM a few years back during Halloween. I don't know. I'm asking you. I'm just kidding. Um, I'm sure. Daniel Carlson. Giuseppe makes a movie. Joe Estrica. Not quite Hollywood. And Electric Boogaloo. Dave uh, Fresnia. When the Witches Came to Town. Behind the Scenes of Witches Eastwick. Eric Waters. Overnight. Scott Herliska. Easy. Number one. Um, and he posts a link, which I, oh, Burden of Dreams, there we go. And he also has number two, uh, Hearts of Darkness, A Filmmaker's Apocalypse. Peter McCain, this film is not yet rated. Yorowski's Dune is also pretty good. Ned Christensen, Not Quite Hollywood, 7852, Best Worst Movie, Lost Souls, Psycho Legacy. Gino Alfonso, Easy, Riser, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Eric James, American Movie, It's Cathartic. Jason Howard, Best Worst Movie, Scott Fox, Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street. There we go. And I need a cup of coffee. Bad. Um, I gotta go out to dinner tonight. That's first world problems. I gotta go to dinner. Um, so, question of the week. Masterpieces under 90 minutes. And don't, don't be like, well, this one's three hours. No. Masterpieces under 90 minutes. Gotta be under 90 minutes. What are some masterpieces? My public enemy. There's one. So, I guess we're gonna hop into the update. Okay, hop into this update. First up, we have Road to Selena. I know that the boys at Pierce Cinema Podcast gave this a lot of love. Sounded like I would enjoy it. So, picked it up from Kino, which is a great company with a lot of cool releases. 
And I think Kino is probably the most underrated of the big companies. I mean, we got some great companies, but Kino doesn't get the love that some of the other ones do. Next is Rape Me um, or uh, Basma, I believe is how you say it. I've seen this a long time ago and it does not sh want to show up because it's all black cover. <laughs> it's just such a glare. Uh, but yeah, this movie, I remember being pretty insane, uh, highly sexually explicit. But also I wanted to grab this because it has a commentary by Kat Ellinger on there. And uh, I feel like she would have a lot to say about this movie. I remember, like I said, being really intense. And then we have Half-Baked from Kino. Yeah, I grew up with this movie. Uh, I love it. Uh, very funny. Same director of Billy Madison, which I also love. So I, I feel like this director has a, a direct like like line to my uh, funny bone. And then we have the last keynote here, Baxter, which uh, I've always wanted to see. I remember I picked up the DVD not too long ago, but I remember always seeing the title. Um, I guess it's like a serial killer dog. This sounds totally up my alley. I should have watched this like 20 years ago. So yeah. <laughs> then we have Jacob's Wife. Which I hear good things about. We got um, Larry Fezzendent and Barbara Crampton. So why not? It was not very expensive. Looks fun. Heard good things. And then we have The Wraith. That's right. From Vestron. Um, I wish I saw this movie when I was 12. And I'm sure it would be one of my favorites. But I saw it when I was like 20. So <laughs> I, I like The Wraith. Uh, but I don't love it. Revenge Tale. Uh, yeah, Charlie Sheen freaking uh clint howard's in that movie too and then we have these i'll be covering for next week i'm going to review these next week deck collector from culture shock cover art pretty cool nice slip this one uh, i think was released on dvd from a uh, shriek show possibly i never watched it and also on dvd we have creep tales which i'll also be covering cool slip cover be reviewing these next week so we'll get into them then um, then we have some bootlegs. I know what you're saying. Dave, what are you doing? Why are you buying bootlegs? All right, leave me alone. These movies are either out of print on Blu-ray or they don't have a Blu-ray or they're like $150 to import and then I'll just, I'll just wait until a U.S. release and buy that. So when they do come out, I will be buying them. This is, which one is this? Curse of the Devil on Blu-ray, a Paul Nashy werewolf flick. And a lot of these did get releases in like Germany and then like goes out of print and it's like $10 million. So these were relatively inexpensive. They took forever to ship, which no problem, man. I get it. You're busy. So am I. Then we have Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, which is another Paul Nashy werewolf movie. I believe had a German Blu-ray. So there's like three of these. Um, and then we have Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman. Another Nashy Werewolf I mean, uh, movie that didn't have a Blu-ray stateside. So I grabbed those. That's three Nashies. Uh, all the actual releases that he had in the States on Blu-ray I have. I think I have every Nashy movie that he released. So um, Then we have The Seven Curse, which is, uh, I think, a Hong Kong crazy movie. It's supposed to be nuts. Same director. It's the same director as uh, The Black Cat, that weird, The Cat. Um, maybe I'm mistaken, but I think it might be. I can't remember. Then we have Clear Cut with Graham Greene. Um, Red Man's Rage, A White Man's Terror. Okay, we got a revenge flick here, so why not? A rare, impressive intensity. Don't know if I've seen too many Native American revenge films, but I'm definitely interested. Then we have Zerum, which um, has a Japanese Blu-ray, which is a million dollars, not a print. So I have the second one on Blu-ray. Always wanted to watch this movie. Looks like a lot of fun, so Zerum. Then we, of course, have Song of the South. 
Um, this is a movie my grandfather always is like, I wish they'd release it. I'd like to see it again. I mean, uh, not understanding probably how horrible it is for a lot of people, but I remember that character. I've seen him as a cartoon in a bunch of times. I've never seen the movie myself and I, I am interested, not because it's like, Oh, it's so extreme. Like, you know, I just, just kind of curious in myself to check it out. Um, then we have this bootleg, uh, of course, of Russ Meyer collection. This is all of them on Blu-ray put like DVDs on a couple Blu-rays. I, I don't know if this is still in print. I would definitely buy it if it were, but I was ordering and it was cheap. So that's a bunch of movies there. Then we have the Nightbreed Ultimate Cabal Cut, which I don't think was ever technically released. Maybe it was, but I mean, we have the regular cut, the director's cut, the Cabal Cut, and then extended Cabal Cut. No, we have Cabal Cut, which I have, and then we have this one, which the call, but yeah, like this is the ultimate Cabal Cut. So, this is even longer. Low, low quality VHS. So there we go. Um, one of my favorite movies is Nightbreed. So and then we have these boot boxes, which have a bunch of crazy movies in them. I'm not going to go through. Bill Hicks Halloween special, How to Carve Great Faces for Halloween, Full Body Massage, Hotel Paradise, Body Drop, Asphalt, Broadcast Girl, Marie the Doll, Depraved Relations. There's tons of movies on here. Just in SD. And then we have some more here. Crazy movies here. I don't even read all these. Strip, uh, Skin Strippist, Woman of Rome. I can't even read that one. Uh, Desire and Hell and Sunset Motel, A Spiral of Mist, The Perfect Forest. More boot box here. See You in Hell, Friends, Brutal Sorcery, Doing Time in Times Square, Pervert Word Torturing, The White Uniform, The Atlas Rider, uh, Monster Heaven, The Insatiable, Visitors from the Galaxy, Dirty, and Harvest Moon. They said just bootlegs, but hey, sometimes you just do it. Uh, Snot, 1993, uh, Machining, uh, Horla, uh, Manaja, uh, Elmuk, a.k.a. Rape, okay, The Rape from Greece, and uh, Carissus. Grandier Nature, a.k.a. Love Doll, a.k.a. Life Size 1974, Alicia and I had the Arm. These, like, are not the best quality, of course. It's hard to read from where I'm sitting. mid Blot, Pig Chicken Suicide. That sounds uh, great. Newlywed Hell. I don't know. They were they had a sale, and I was just like, I'm just curious to see the quality on these. And then last was Bootbox 17, Guzu, Cotton, Biotherapy, and Thriller Zone. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, it was from Sloppy Seconds. It's a site. They're relatively cheap. I definitely want those like those uh, Paul Nashy movies in HD. And uh, if I come get an American release, I will be buying them or checking them out for sure. So, anyways, back to the video. All right, guys. Thank you very much for watching. And as always, have a good one. Mm.